Today's Survivor Game Changer preview is sponsored by the 5-4 Club for men. No, not the top five baby club. We're talking 5-4 Club, the L.A.-based men's clothing company that sends you two to four seasonally curated items every month for just $60. It's an incredible value and a great way to consistently update your wardrobe without the hassle of going to the mall. Right now, our listeners can get this great deal. When you sign up with the promo code RHAP, you'll get 50% off your first month's package and a pair of 5-4 sunglasses valued at $75. So for 50% off your first month and the free sunglasses, go to 5-4 Club, that's F-I-V-E-F-O-U-R, club.com and use promo code RHAP at 54club.com promo code RHAP. Hey everybody, what's going on? Rob Sestrina here with Game Changers cast preview number six and we've got another good one today. We're going to be talking about Malcolm Freeberg and Sarah Lucina. First up today on the docket, our friend Booyah that you met during So You Think You Can Podcast is going to be going through a very extensive, very detailed journey through Malcolm's two seasons in Survivor Philippines and Caramoan. Lots of fun stuff there from Malcolm's Survivor past. And then, of course, we will project into the future how Malcolm is going to do. Should be a lot of fun for all the Malcoholics out there. And then, then we're going to switch gears and talk Sarah Lucina with Lindsay Wilson and go through Sarah and what happened with her and Tony in Kagiyan. Can they potentially work together? And what does the future hold with Sarah here on another jam-packed Survivor cast preview? Of course, uh, we had on Monday, we did our Ozzy and Debbie episode. If you missed that and you want to make sure that same fate does not happen to you in the future, you could subscribe to our podcast anytime. Go to robhasawebsite.com slash iTunes and you can subscribe to the podcast. And of course, we appreciate all of the feedback and star ratings that you have for us there. And also, you Survivor fans, I have another Survivor preseason podcast coming up in between today and our next Game Changers preview on Friday when I am going to be speaking with Erin Sebula from ET Canada. She was out there on location with Josh Wiggler and Dalton Ross and Gordon Holmes talking with Jeff. And she has a lot of great stories from the interviews and preseason videos that they got for ET Canada. She's going to be joining me to discuss all that. Plus, I'm going to talk with Jillian Larson about the reality rally. Look for that show coming on Thursday in addition to our coverage of Hunted Night Number 6. So get it all. Rob has a website.com slash iTunes. So turning to Malcolm, I'm really surprised it took this long to get Malcolm back. It's been eight seasons since we last saw Malcolm Freeberg on Survivor. And to get you set for Malk's return, here is my interview with Puya. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today to talk about the return of somebody that is long overdue to return to Survivor. Ever since Survivor Caramoan, we have been counting down for the return of Malcolm Freeberg. And this season, he will be back with 19 other Survivors and here to talk about the legacy of Malcolm Freeberg and what we can come to expect in season 34 here is Puya Zand Vakili. Puya. Hey, Rob. I'm excited to be here. I've done my calculations and <laughs> I'm ready to tell everyone why our buddy Malcolm Freeberg is going to wayfare his way to the end. <laughs> All right, good. 
Really excited to get into talking about Malcolm because I think that he's uh, really, really fun. I think he might even be an underrated player at this point going into this season. So uh, this should be a really great look back in, you know, we got so much Malcolm in like a short burst. It was the year of Malcolm all the way back in uh, basically from the fall of 2012 until uh, the spring of 2013. And then then nothing for like four years. And now here he is. He's back and hopefully ready for a deep run into Survivor 34. Okay, Puya, a lot of people know you from the So You Think You Can podcast competition, but if any of our Survivor listeners didn't follow any of what was going on during Big Brother OTT, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I can. I can first say if you've missed BBOTT, kudos. I wish I could have as well. (laughs) But... Yeah, I mean, I've been around for about a year and a half or so. First uh, ignited my love with uh, Big Brother, and that's how I found the podcast. And then right around then is when uh, Caramoan was starting, so I went back and watched the Philippines. And then after the Philippines, I went back and rewatched as much as I could before 26 even started. So I would say Philippines is, my, uh, is where Survivor started for me, as far as the, uh, the passion. Okay. All right. So why Malcolm? Is it just because you love that season and that was your first love and Malcolm was there? I mean, okay. So when I first watched it, Malcolm was top of my list as my fave. Continued watching, continued looking at other seasons, rewatching. And, you know, three years later, Malcolm was still on top of my list. Nothing had changed. If anything, I don't want to get into it real quick right now, but it's almost like the archetype that Malcolm ended up uh, shaping himself to be in. As the uh, jack of all trades bro, I really resonated with not because I'm a jack of all trades, but because I'm a little bro every now and then. So I just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed what he brought to the table. And I really enjoyed how he was able to, you know, kill the perceptions that people may have had of him and how he was able to do it back to back. People might have a certain image of Malcolm in their head from his back-to-back appearances in 25 and 26. Going back and watching Malcolm play in those two seasons and then all the times that we've talked since then, what's your takeaway of who is Malcolm Freeberg? Malcolm Freeberg is an individual who masked himself as a bartender and gets on the show and proves that there is more to him than being a bartender. He comes in, our first impression, very seemingly athletic guy, athletic build. He'll be good in the challenges. He'll probably going to be a physical beast. But what little people saw in the uh, cast bios leading up to the show was his strategic chops. And I think that's something we were exposed to very, very early on in the season. I think that was basically it, was the fact that there were more than one dimensions to him. and as a couple of people on the podcast have mentioned yourself. Um, Koss has mentioned this. Um, Kurt has mentioned this. He is a three-tool player. He's got the strategic chops. He's got the physical acumen. And he's also got the personality that shines on through. And his personality is able to grasp anyone around him. The triple threat. Malcolm is back. And of course, uh, let's go back and uh, take a look at Malcolm 1.0 and his original game. Now, Malcolm did not ever have the benefit of getting to watch his season play out before he got to play. Of course, he went to go film Survivor Philippines. He makes it all the way to fourth place. And then he comes right back before that season airs and goes and plays in Survivor Caramoan 
only a couple of weeks after it airs. So in season 34, we will finally get to see whatever takeaways Malcolm has seen from the televised product of the show. And I think that's very exciting. Very, very exciting indeed. Okay, so let's go back and take a look to Malcolm's first season. Now, Malcolm plays in a very interesting format in Survivor Philippines. It's the first time that we go to three tribes for the first time since Survivor All-Stars. And we have these returning players in the mix. So we have Jonathan Penner. We have Russell Swan and some other guy. And Malcolm is going to be on a tribe with... Russell Swan and Malcolm has a very interesting philosophy of how to deal with having a returning player on his season. Can you speak to early Malcolm thoughts in Survivor Philippines? Early Malcolm thoughts. I mean, Malcolm comes in and looks at Russell the way everyone would have looked at Russell, which is like, yikes, this guy is going to just want to take control immediately. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to sit there and let him do what he does. And just try and maneuver myself to solidify myself and not have to um, depend on him to go further. Malcolm has an interesting journey, I think, over his two seasons. So he starts in this situation <laughs> with Russell Swan, and he's almost like gleeful to, I will defer the leadership to Russell Swan, that I will let him look bad, but I will really be sort of like calling the shots with Denise behind the scenes, and I'll let him be out in front as the leader and he defers that leadership to other people throughout Philippines. I feel like, especially when he goes over to Tandang and then even into survivor Caramoan where he's back with the returning players and he's going to defer the leadership over to the Philippines. And then I think it's not until we get to the merge in Caramoan that he finally is going to be the leader of his own little group uh, with the three amigos. So I think that's a fun journey to track of him deferring the leadership towards ultimately being the guy out in front. And I think what's going to ultimately be more successful is when he's actually the person who's not out in front. Um, I agree. I agree. And it's funny because in his first cast bio for the Philippines, his um, if you read it, you came away with it thinking this guy's going to try everything he can to be the power player, to be the one in control and to bulldoze his way, which ended up being the complete opposite until the very end of his second game. And I think you're right. I think Malcolm always does better when he kind of can take the back seat and let someone else drive it. And then as it's getting close to the cliff, he can jump out and figure another way. Because Malcolm, he looks the part of the alpha male who's going to dominate the tribe and sort of want that leadership position. But I do feel like that Malcolm is probably more of a Jim Halpert. And I mean that in a very flattering way in terms of being more of the guy who really doesn't want to be the boss. He's very happy to let Michael Scott run the office and screw things up. And he's there just to give a, uh, a quip to the camera. And I think that that's the position that he really excels at. I agree. I think that's a very apt comparison with Jim Halpert because something that I really noticed from Malcolm, especially after uh, watching the episodes once again, was his, um, he understands his worth. He understands what he's capable of and he doesn't need the validation of his tribe mates or the audience to make him feel like he needs to drive to do something different. No, he knows what he's worth. He knows what he brings to the table. And he's just going to let other people, you know, deal with the bullets and the battlefield. And he will just, you know, continue doing his consistent thing to get to the end. So I think the fact that he doesn't feel the need to prove anything to anybody 
really, really brings up the Jim Halpert. And really, even in Karamoan, I don't think it's really by his choice that he has to take things on on his own and really end up creating this little task force that he does. It's really just that he's put in that position where everybody else is trying to get rid of him and his back is really against the wall. So it'll be interesting to see how that ends up translating as an older person with a couple more years of life experience, how that translates into Survivor 34. But we'll get there. So let's uh, stick with the Philippines. And so Malcolm is part of one of these losingest tribes uh, that there ever was. Matt Singh is going to go to four consecutive tribal councils. So we see a lot of Malcolm and Denise in action early on. Of course, uh, Zane is spiraling out of control early on in Survivor <laughs> Philippines. Uh, what, what can you tell us about Malcolm in the early days? Uh, what I can tell you about Malcolm is that in the very early days, I think he noticed after their first challenge that, damn, we might not be in the winning tribe. And I mean that in the sense that it was very obvious that his tribe was stacked a little weaker. And I'm saying this as um, if one of your guys, one of your three male bodies has quit smoking right before they start playing the game. Yeah, red flag. You know, worry about that a little bit. But I think Malcolm's key position here, and I think the best thing that could have happened to him is that he ended up on this tribe. Because with the two males that he had sitting next to him, he decided to look in other places and in doing that finds Denise and pairs up with Denise, which I think is one of the most underrated moves of that entire season was him matching up with Denise as opposed to matching up with one of the guys or as opposed to, you know, going all in for the cookies with the cookie monster. That is Angie. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think that was his uh, first move and maybe his most solid move. Talk to me a little bit about the genesis of the Malcolm and Denise Alliance. Everybody knows how tight they were throughout the whole game. Do you feel like was that more of a Malcolm move, a Denise move, or it was just like the perfect combination? Yeah, no, I think it was definitely the marriage of convenience. I think the way I saw it was that Denise sees this guy, realizes very quickly, okay, this is the most um, solid-minded guy here amongst the three of them. And decides, okay, and he's a young guy. He seems sociable. He seems likable. I'll get along with him fine. Pairs up with him. And on the flip side, Malcolm does the exact same thing. He's looking at Russell. Doesn't want any of that. He's looking at Zane. Doesn't want any of that. So he looks over and he's like, okay, Denise is the most able-minded person here. She see, And like Denise, the one thing she did right off the bat was she came out as a hustler with her um, physical acumen and the challenges. So that was an easy sell for him to be like, okay, not only do I get along with her fine but she's an asset too. So I don't have to worry about needing to pull her um, further with our challenges if we are going to keep losing or anything like that. So I think it was more of a marriage of convenience for the both of them. All right, I want to talk about, you mentioned the Cookie Monster, uh, Angie Layton, uh, who's a significant figure in the early Survivor career of Malcolm because Malcolm is very conflicted in the early going of Survivor because it's raining, you know, cats and dogs in the Philippines. It's very cold. What starts out as cuddling is sort of teetering on the brink of potentially a showmance. There is some talk of the uh, the booty blinders and the headlights in the early going in Survivor Philippines. And Malcolm is like, he tells us, he's like, I know this is bad. I don't want to do this. He does ultimately come through and vote out Angie. But there's a little bit of talk, especially between the Roxy vote and the Angie vote, when it's like, which one of these people do we want to get rid of? Malcolm is trying to keep and protect Angie for a bit. 
Right. And I mean, shout out to the OG Miss Cuddle Shack, Angie. <laughs> <laughs> but and like it made sense. Okay, so Zane goes, and then we get to the point where you're talking about with Roxy and with Angie. I think at that point it made sense because it's still only been one vote. So you're not entirely sure what the rest of the game is going to play out like. You could very well end up winning the rest of your challenges after vote two and, you know, make it to a tribe swap or a merge situation with four people from your tribe, which at that point, had they gotten, he decided to get rid of Angie. He kind of knew it's me and Denise versus Russell and Roxy, but getting Roxy out kind of ensures for him that, okay, I'm safe now. And if we go to tribal again, we can cut her knowing that if we go to tribal another time, Russell will be the one to take the fall. So I think it was just a matter of um, just making sure that they had a core numbers advantage should they move into the next stage of the game. So Puya, the Matsing tribe is going to lose their fourth consecutive immunity challenge and go back to tribal council and vote out Russell Swan. And there's a lot of talk between, you know, that three person tribal council before the merge. It's a real rarity in survivor history. But how do you think facing all that adversity so early on in his survivor career shaped Malcolm as a player? It really helped. And the problem with this question, Rob, is that this is like adversity one of like 12 for Malcolm, honestly. And I think having been kicked down so many times with the heavy rain, with the Matt singing, whether intentional or not. Um, <laughs> just these things that happen early on in the game really, really shape you for what's coming. Because like someone like, to talk about Denise real quick, for someone who gets to be in every single tribal council and make it out alive, you know what tells people have. You know their body language there. You know what the perceptions are. You know how who's reading who and what's going on. Because you've been to every tribal council and you've seen every person in the uh, on the chopping block kind of like sweat it out while waiting to vote. So I think adversity in that shape really, really helped them because it's kind of it's getting the scares out right off the bat. It's like exposure therapy almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, iron sharpens iron, as coach used to say. So uh, he is really battle tested him and Denise early on by going to these four consecutive tribal councils. And really, when you think about it, like you have uh, Penner. And, uh, you know, somebody else is in the game who ends up, you know, they're returning players. They've been to tribal councils before, but nobody else in the game has even been to one tribal council yet. And they've got four up on everybody else on the board. So they've got a real head start going into this season. And so they're able to uh, play at a different speed than everybody else is. So Malcolm and Denise are going to get split up, but not before that we have in Survivor Philippines this thing where the hidden immunity idol is hidden in the cover to the rice. Malcolm right. is able to track this down before we have the tribe swap. And this is going to be very important in terms of Malcolm because Malcolm Freeberg has a nose for the hidden immunity idol. He's one of the handful of players that they have a knack for finding these idols. That's not incorrect. Absolutely. I mean, he's um, he's very into knowing where the idol is. I have a quote I pulled up here from uh, before Russell gets booted where Malcolm's searching through Russell's bag and he says, I have no shame out here. If you have an idol, I want to know about it. I want as many variables in my control as possible. So with Malcolm, it almost seems as if not only does he want that idol because, you know, it's a safety in this game. It's a guaranteed spot in this game should you play it correctly. But it's a variable in the game that if you know the locations to it, you can control it or you can play to avoid it. And I think that's um, 
him having the nose of a bloodhound when it comes to finding idols is an asset that is very, very underrated. And very few people are capable of uh, going multiple like he has. Uh, God knows I'm not, uh, Puyan. <laughs> so going to where Malcolm and Denise are split up, Malcolm is going to go over to the Tandang tribe. And Malcolm really becomes like the bell of the ball over at Tandang, where everybody wants a piece of Malcolm. He is a highly sought after commodity where thinking about, hey, here's this person who's going to be a threat after the merge. We should get rid of him. No, everybody at Tandang seemingly wants to work with him. Right. And I mean, it goes back to his... Um, Except maybe his, RC. I don't know about that. I mean, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> vice versa. How would that go, you know? For yeah. Her? Anyways. So, yeah, and I think the thing with Malcolm is it goes back to his big personality. He's able to attract people, different demographics of people from different walks of life, and they all like him without question. And I think another reason that he was able to become such a prom queen commodity there is because of the fact that that tribe hadn't really been to a tribal. They had, I think Stephen is someone that really hits this uh, point home where without tribal councils, without voting with someone, you don't know where their mind is. Mm -hmm. So these people not having been able to put their trust on the line like that really did not, could not say they were solid. And the minute someone like Malcolm comes in, you would rather be on his side than be against him. So, and I feel like the divides there that was happening with the someone and RC versus the other four, um, it was very, it, it's a very tricky situation where it's like, okay, we definitely need to make sure he's good with us because if he ends up becoming something bigger, we need to be able to either hinder his power, control his power or use his power. Yeah. And I mean, that's the way it goes. He becomes the Hercules of that tribe. Yeah, I mean, there's a fractured group over at Tandang, and it's sort of like uh, shades of something like Survivor Token Genes, where, you know, Timbira wants to take in Steven and JT and Taj because they want to use them to get rid of the people they don't like in their own group. And that's really what's going on here with uh, Tandang. Everybody wants to use him and take him in and get rid of, you know, RC and scoop in at that point. And interestingly, uh, Pete Bro here, he likes Malcolm so much, he tells Malcolm, hey, just so you know, I've got, we got the idol. <laughs> right, right. And it's um, that very moment that Malcolm has another memorable quote in my books. Um, Information is power. So I need to get as much of it as I can. The minute Malcolm finds out Pete has this idol, now he knows where two of them are, one of them in his possession. And he rightfully does not share that information with Pete Bro. But I think the biggest surprise for me watching that was, Pipro was enamored with Malcolm. Yeah, he loved him. I mean, who knows? If they had started together, maybe Abby Maria and Pete would have never been a thing. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Major man crush going on from Pete Bro towards Malk. So it's smooth sailing for Malcolm up until we get to the point where we have the merge and we have everybody is all lovey-dovey at the merge feast. And we've talked about the weather in Survivor Philippines and everybody's clothes have been rained on over, you know, the past couple of weeks. So this is when Facts of Life star, child actress, Lisa Welchel gets the bright idea. You know what? Let me just air out everybody's laundry. And upon emptying out Malcolm's bag and innocently enough, she ends up finding the hidden immunity idol, which leads to a very frantic conversation between Malcolm and Lisa. And so how does Malcolm handle this stressful situation? So immediately Malcolm realizes the clothes are hanging up. My bag's empty. Panics, finds Denise, talks with her real quick and is told, you know, just he's like, I'm going to go just talk to her right now. I'm going to find her, take her aside, talk to her. 
And I think he nailed it because he didn't even speak. He literally walked with her and then turned over and just looked at her until she revealed that she knew. And after that, it was just damage control. He was very honest about it. He was very charming towards Lisa, trying as much as he could to convince her, you know, no, I'm with Denise is the only one that knows. You know this and immediately makes her promise not to tell anybody, which I mean, given Lisa's character and how she had been behaving up until that point, that was the best he could do was to get her to promise it, you know, as someone who wants to be honest in this game and truthful, he was able to get her to commit to something that I think he knew were in sync with her moral compass. And he was able to get her to do that, whether he believed she was going to keep it to herself or not is a whole other story. But when you're dealing with someone like that, who's going with this honor code into the game, then the best thing you can do is to make them put their honor on the line. So it's a kind of chaotic situation in the immediate merge in Survivor Philippines. You have a lot of people that want to vote out the returning players. Penner is going to be the target of the vote. They're going to split the votes between Penner and RC. Malcolm is going to be part of the that big group, and he's going to be one of the votes that go on Penner. Penner is going to play his idol, which ultimately sends RC out of the game as the first boot at the merge and becomes the first member of the jury. But the second tribal council after the merge is where things get really crazy because now there's a lot of talk about who is going to be the target and there's a lot of scrambling that's happening. Now, there's a alliance which is starting to take hold once Penner is saved and there's a little bit of a talk about a narrative of sort of like the good people and the bad people and the good people are all on a reward together. So could you talk a little bit about this alliance that Malcolm finds himself as a part of? Jonathan kind of blows the lid off on the good people, bad people, and we get that famous soundbite that we love. And um, Malcolm finds himself in a situation where he decides, or he tells Denise, okay, we're together. They end up roping in Lisa and Scoopin. And then on the flip side, uh, they have Penner and Carter. And they decide... We need to get the horrible people out, the bad people. Why don't we just get the horrible people out of here? Say bye-bye, man. In theaters near you. (laughs) So this six correlation comes together. And I mean, who's the target? Obviously, it's Abby Maria, Pete Bro, and winner pick for Nicole Sesternino, artist. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't talk about that one. Right, that, that's a silent one. <laughs> yes. So what happens with Lisa Welchel and the Hidden Immunity Idol after she had promised to not say anything to anybody? I mean, of course, that doesn't end up being the case. Um, the purse strings are loosened and information starts flowing out there. And this is the first um, sign we see of Malcolm. And, you know, it kind of sets up for the future in the next season where he confesses. He says, I don't want any speculation. Here it is. Whips out the idol. I have the idol. And it kind of turns everyone's mind for a loop a little bit. But Malcolm does what I think was the right move, where he basically outs himself at that point. Because at the end of the day, if people speculate you have it, then you might as well put it out there. And I think based on what we know of him now, knowing how he played it, Jay last season kind of did a similar thing where his idol was out there in the know. And he didn't play it. And that's what Malcolm did. He he brings it out at Tribal, sends everyone racing a little bit, and then just sat there and watched the fireworks go off. 
Yeah. And I think that Malcolm is a bit of a transformative figure in the history of the Hidden Immunity Idol because Russell Hans, I believe, he also at times just took out the Hidden Immunity Idol and wore it and didn't play it. But I feel like that in between Russell's run in Survivor Heroes versus Villains in Samoa, then between season 20 and 24, I feel like that there is a bit of a drought in terms of the Hidden Immunity Idol. There's a lot of people that have the Hidden Immunity Idol and just hold it most of the way through. And it doesn't get played a lot in those seasons. And then you end up with Malcolm, who really turns the Hidden Immunity Idol back into an offensive weapon to help keep the target off of him. Exactly. And um, that that was the, the, the key to that play, is that he didn't just you know, whip it out and use it immediately. He kind of showed the power it had and then kept it. And as we all know, the further the idol goes, the more powerful it ends up becoming. Because right. it takes down, you go from one and seven to one and six to one and five and so on. And I think that was the key here for him was that he kind of put it out there so they know he has it. So they're a little reserved on voting for him unless they have more of a solidified idea of he's going to play or not. Right. So I think um, that's where he kind of was able to go back under the radar in an odd way because no one wanted to risk doing a vote, him using the idol, and then one of them going home. Yeah, and I said that Malcolm uses it as an offensive weapon. He doesn't quite do that here in Philippines. He uses it probably more defensively as a shield, whereas in seasons, you know, 22, 23, and 24, Boston Rob finds the idol. He takes it with him all the way to the end. And then coach has the idol and he ends up taking it with him all the way to the end. Kim Spradlin has the idol. She takes it with her all the way to the end. Whereas Malcolm is really the first person since Russell Hans to sort of like be dangling it out there in public saying, you want to come after me? I have this. I'm wearing it. What am I going to do? I'm crazy. I might play it. I might not. And he uses it to keep himself protected at this early stage of the merge. The next season, he'll end up using it in some more creative ways. But I think that that's just right. really interesting to note that he's a very important person where we track the trajectory of the Hidden Immunity Idol from in between Russell and Tony. I think he's the person that gets the Hidden Immunity Idol used in a lot of creative different ways. I agree. I think um, in between those two bookends, uh, Malcolm in the middle really did shine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was on that show. It's wonderful. Uh, no, I don't think that was true. Okay. So uh, then after we see Jeff Kent going home at this spot, the worm starts to turn back into Malcolm's favor where we start to get a couple of votes in a row where members of the Axis of Evil are targeted in artists and Pete. Uh, Abby's going to go home eventually, but she's part of that. And so how is Malcolm now finding his footing as the target has been shifted off of him and his allies in the early days of this merge? And he ends up going on this reward with, I believe, he, Abby and um, Carter, I believe. Yeah, it's like all the kids on this. Yeah, all the it was a it was a fun high school trip. And they all go to the, uh, the uh, I believe it was the spa reward. Either way. So they get there and Malcolm immediately convinces these people to not strategize and to just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And um, they agree. I mean, Pete has a big confessional where he's like, yeah, no, I think Malcolm had the, uh, the right decision and we didn't have to strategize. And it was great to have yourself removed from the game for a couple, you know, just have a drink and like really like you're this close okay cool so i don't know how malcolm was able to do that but the three of them were okay with not strategizing 
And he had decided right then and there, I want my final four set today. So they get back and he sets himself up with his final four with Denise, Scoopin and uh, Lisa. And that's one of the things that I really, really enjoyed seeing with Malcolm is how ahead he would think, but he wouldn't overplay it. He wouldn't overdo that. And I think this is the uh, the fulcrum episode. For the Penn. fulcrum vote. Right. Because Malcolm decides right then and there, I want my final four now. And on the flip side, that's when Penner was approached with a final four and decides it's too soon. I still want to play the middle and I don't want to commit to any of these sides. I think that's where um, that's where it really gets interesting for me is that Malcolm was able to think ahead, but not so much that it was obvious he was thinking ahead. Yeah. You take it a game at a time on the surface. And that's good because it's at nine right here and he's looking ahead to what is my four and so we need to have at least five on this vote. So it's sort of like, okay, who is our core four and who's sort of like this extra person that we think that we're letting them think is with them. So it is really good that especially as a young person on his first time out that we really do get to see that he is thinking ahead and more so than some of the veteran players uh, that he's out there with in that spot. So Artis is going to go home. Then Pete is going to go home. Uh, we have uh, the vote split there between uh, Pete and Abby Maria. Abby Maria is going to end up playing her idol on herself. And then uh, we get down to the situation where uh, we're at the final seven. Now, how does Malcolm handle Abby Maria? Because there could be some difficult personalities in season 34. And I think that this is an interesting thing to highlight this relationship. Right. So as we start highlighting this one, um, I think to preface it, I think Malcolm is one of the few people that is able to tolerate the dummies that end up on these seasons with him. I think there's been more than one, and I think we will touch on the other ones later. Mm-hmm. But so Malcolm was actually not malicious towards Abby at any point. This is the uh, the previous tribal where um, Pete goes, I believe, is the same one where um, Abby starts feeling overwhelmed. She starts realizing that they they don't like her as a person, not even not just as a player. And they get back and it's the morning of, and they go to tree mail, the uh, auction envelopes are there and Malcolm's standing there with Abby. Abby's welling up because she thinks it's letters from home and Malcolm hugs her and consoles her and tells her, I wanted to give you a hug last night. Like I know it's hard and being able to realize something like that, being able to realize that, okay, Abby is playing with her head and heart a little bit, but more emotionally than anything strategically ever. And being able to instill this kind of emotion into her. I mean, and this is after like on the uh, heels of hearing him on the podcast, you know, say that he was able to avoid psychiatric damage <laughs> on the island with Abby. Yeah. And we're seeing him arm in arm with her, you know, consoling her and making sure she's okay. So that just comes out as a, he's a genuinely like he doesn't want to see people sad. But at the same time, he knows what's good for him. He knows how to play certain people and how they want to be um, how they want to be spoken to and how they want to be acted. Right. And then he still can give us the Jim Halper moment in a confessional about how <laughs> crazy the people are uh, that he's out there with. So they have their final four set. So they're able to knock out Penner at the final seven. They're able to then go after Carter at the final six, leading to this final five with Malcolm Denise scooping lisa and abby maria and malcolm is going to be a part of a group that wins a reward and he has a chance now again we talk about malcolm and how he's always forward thinking 
he has a chance to strike a final three deal with Lisa and Scoopin. I mean, to my knowledge, he does exactly that. He realized he you could tell in that reward. He's realized he's played out the scenarios. And I believe he knew at that point who his biggest threat was and who he could sit there at the end with and feel comfortable about sealing a victory here. And I think the hardest part for him was coming to realization that Denise is the person that he can't sit there with, which um, made sense. And his argument was certainly compelling. And I loved how he played it up until that point, because the loved ones uh, reward had happened after uh, before that. And he did pick uh, Lisa and Scoopin to have their family members come back to the. the and how did the, they uh, thank him? By giving him the boot. <laughs> yeah, they talked about yeah. with their loved ones. Oh, we should get rid of Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. That was a weird scene. I had forgotten that we saw a 10-minute loved ones visit where we barely saw Malcolm and his brother. And then we saw sister. 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 Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they the four of them just basically sat there and decided how they were going to seal um, Malcolm's demise, which was horrible to kind of watch as a fan of Malcolm. Okay. But you saw him try again at the next reward to keep to solidify that. But, you know, sometimes the cards don't fall where you want. One of the moments that you could go back and take a look at here is getting rid of Abby Maria at the final five. I know he's got this final three deal with Scoopin and with Lisa. When you went back and watched this, does that seem like a bad spot to you to knock out Abby Maria at five? It kind of does. But at the same time, looking at the variables that were left in the game, I feel like and I don't know this for certain because I don't recall hearing it on any of the podcasts, but I feel like at that situation, Denise was not, and Denise is a very calm lady and she is, <laughs> you know, she gets along with, she talks to people for a living. Yeah. So she, so she has thick skin, but when she's on the brink of insanity with this girl and she's, you're like one of your true, true numbers that you trust. Mm -hmm. It's a hard sell to tell them, listen, we'll keep Abby. We'll get rid of one of them and then we'll get rid of Abby. It's a hard sell. Mm -hmm. um, at, on the flip side, too, if he was really trying to push for the final three with Lisa and Scoopin and turns around and takes one of them out, I think the worry there would have been that he would uh, definitely lose the vote of the person he got rid of. And uh, then by proxy, he would probably he would they would not leave happy, essentially. And I think the biggest problem there was that Abby had dug herself into this massive hole where people just did not care about her being a uh, someone with much potential. Mm -hmm. They pretty much just wanted to have sanity for the last couple of days. And I think it would have been a hard turn. It, it could have been possible, but I think it would have been a little bit shades of, um, and I don't think Malcolm's capable of doing this, but it would have been a little bit of shades of Spencer at the final four saying, you know, really coming off as a aggressive, uh, dare I say bully mm -hmm. by saying, you know, if you take, Kelly, you're not getting my vote or something to that extent. Well, I don't think Malcolm has that bone in him where people could look at him and be like, wow, you were a little too aggressive there, buddy. But at the same time, I don't think he would. I don't think he was able to do it. Even if he wanted to, it would have been rough. Malcolm still has the hidden immunity idol at the final five. There's a point where Denise asks him, hey, so you want immunity here. Could I have your idol tonight? And he doesn't end up giving it to her. Now, was that one of the reasons, if I recall, that Denise didn't feel great about what Malcolm was telling her at the Final Four? Well, there was that. But also, I think the bigger thing was that before the um, right when Malcolm wins his advantage for the final immunity, mm -hmm. Denise goes up to him and Denise says, 
well, can I trust that you will vote with me so that at the very least I go into fire with Lisa? And Malcolm made a, mist- a hiccup here where he played around. He's like, I can't give you a definitive answer right now. I know you're going to hate me, but trust me, I'm not going to leave you like this. I will right. give you an answer soon enough. And that was horrible for he him hedged. because, right, he hedged them. And it was conditional. And at that point, it didn't pan out. I think, I think if he had just said yes at that point, we could have seen a fire making challenge that night. Who knows? Um, but I think that is where, I mean, it probably didn't help that he didn't just give her the idol at that point because why would he need it? Well, I think at that final five, he, I think that was the last night to play the idol. So he didn't give her the idol at five. And then he also gave her that hedge answer at four. And I think I'm remembering this correctly. I think that this is where she really was going to like wake up and smell the coffee on like, all right, I got to get rid of Malcolm. Right. Yeah. That's when she clued in because at that point when Malcolm wins the advantage, and he had won the previous immunity before winning the advantage reward. His stake as a challenge winner at that point was at its highest. So naturally, everyone was going to come to him with deals and like, please. So I think the mistake he made there was not to just take all of the please in and then be like, okay, if I win, then I get to decide. If I lose, at least I'm good with everyone. Um, I think that's where he went wrong, because at the very least, I think at the end of the day, I mean, if he had agreed with Denise, because him and Denise had been through such adversity from day one together, I think he would have had a good shot of, you know, Denise being with him. But at that point, if you're saying no twice, then a person thinks, well, why? You know, Mm -hmm. you've been with me from day one. Why are you not with me now? That's when you realize one of two things. Either I've been talking behind your back and, you know, backpedaling, which wasn't what Denise was doing. But the second one, you think I'm a threat to win. Therefore, you don't want me there. And I think that was enough for her to really think like, oh, damn, maybe Malcolm is my threat, my proxy. So Malcolm is not going to win that final immunity challenge. He gets two shots at this endurance challenge where he has to hold on to the marbles on uh, some sort of a pole that falls apart. And ultimately, it is going to be Mike Scoopin that wins that immunity. Now, I remember from rewatching this from the evolution of strategy, there's a decision to be made between Lisa and Scoopin about who to take to the final three. And Lisa Welchel is saying, okay, this is like an open and shut case. Uh, We vote out Malcolm. But questionable decision maker Mike Scoopin is thinking, (laughs) you know what? I think I could beat Malcolm. Yeah, I think my story is bigger than his. Yeah. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Trust me. (laughs) Little did he know. (laughs) Yeah. And ultimately, though, the decision is made to uh, knock out Malk here at the final four. Denise goes on to win uh, six to one to one. And the rest is uh, survivor history. So any other thoughts about Malcolm and how he's received uh, at least, uh, you know, it's weird because he's going to have already filmed Caramoan at the time that we are seeing this. Well, what's the overall perception of Malcolm at this point? So the overall perception of Malcolm going after season, the first season he played is that Malcolm came off as a person who was physically capable. Um, He did not come off as a big immunity threat. Like someone like Joe came out as, because, I mean, he only won two and the advantage uh, reward. So that wasn't a big part of his game. Where his game prevailed was his communication with his tribe, how he got along with them, how he um, he uh, worked with them towards building a better shelter. His strategic acumen came out of this really strong. And I think one place where I really saw something in Malcolm that I don't think other people really realize, right when they get to the uh, final four, when Abby is getting 
uh, when we're about to get to the heels of Abby getting voted out, Abby starts really arguing the case for Malcolm. Malcolm's a great guy. He played a great game. He's going to win. And Malcolm comes back the next episode frustrated. He's like, she showered me with compliments, but little does she, she's throwing me under the bus with the compliments. Like, I'm getting sick of coming back here every tribal and having to fight compliments and argue that. And I think that is, again, banging the drums of, I think Malcolm is one of the most self-aware for his archetype that we have ever seen on this show. He knows what's going on around him, but he also knows the perception he has to these people and how he should play it. Mm-hmm. I think coming out of, you know, his first season, many people thought, I mean, had Denise not won, we could have been banging the drums of Malcolm was robbed or whatever. I think the fact that Denise won and the fact that she really played a very, very, very good game and was able to go through many of the adversities, more adversity than Malcolm, because Malcolm had the little bit of a tandang tangent that mm-hmm. kind of allowed him to, you know, feel the rewards and the victories and, you know, have his plate of cookies in episode five. But yeah, so had Denise not won, maybe we would have been a little more salty towards uh, Malcolm not making it to the end there. But I think coming out of that season, it was without a doubt clear that Malcolm was the fan favorite and he yes. did win the uh, Sprint Award. So. And a lot of people knew Malcolm was going to be coming back. So, you know, hard to feel bad for a guy who, you know, is already going to be on the next season. But, you know, in fairness to Malcolm here, I think that what you have to do, that decision to cut your tight final ride or die partner because, you know, you can't beat them. I think that's one of the hardest things to do in any of these shows and we've seen it. And whenever it happens, it's always one of these, uh, you know, really great moments, whether it's like a. John and Netta or, you know, pick the, you know, pick the show. We've seen a lot of people in that spot uh, have a hard time doing it and losing because of it. So it's hard to really beat up Malcolm in that spot, especially when he never had the actual shot to do it. Like he would have had to have done it earlier and he doesn't end up winning that immunity. And then he ultimately ends up losing because he, you know, can't tell a boldface lie to his uh, ride or die partner. Absolutely. And, I, and I, we can't fault him for that, really, because, I mean, thinking about all these past ones that you just mentioned, for example, not to get too into Canada's territory, but what the John and Netta thing. Um, John never, ever thought or seemed like he was going to do it until he got the power to do it. Right. And I think that is the most intricate part of the whole thing is that without the power, Malcolm does not want to look Denise in the eye and say, I can't take you to the end. And I think he would have done it. I think he probably would have done it if he was in the situation. But I just don't think he had the heart to just string her along when he knew he was going to do it. Yeah, I think so, too. I think he knew that if I win, I definitely don't want her there. So I don't want to give her a promise and then break it to her face. And at the same time, I was like, well, if I lose, I don't want to alienate her. Mm-hmm. Um, the only problem with that being at Final Four, it's a little too cute to try and, like, you know, win them back after something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a little difficult. Especially, I mean, you're sitting there with these two other people that far, far uh, surpass you as potential. Okay. All right. So uh, let's talk through uh, Survivor Karamoan. There's probably not as much there uh, in the early going, at least, uh, as there was in Survivor Philippines, because Malcolm is there. He is the new face uh, there with all of the favorites. He's the one person that comes back for the favorites tribe that everybody doesn't know. Uh, Similar to the situation that Michaela and Zeke are going to find themselves in in this season. How do you think Malcolm was able to handle being the person that nobody knows? 
Um, okay, so Malcolm going back to back, I mean, not many have done that, but the ones that have, it has proven to be difficult because you're coming back with these people not knowing what your story was and what your character was coming out of the show and going into the show. So Malcolm comes out and in his podcast, he mentions that um, immediately he's the odd guy out because they don't know him. He knows them. So it's threatening. It's threatening when other people know who you are, but you have no idea who they are. So Malcolm did mention that he tried his best. He tried to, you know, reveal information about what happened in his season, despite being told not to, uh, thinking that, you know, by him doing that, it seems like he really wants to be honest with them. And he kind of garnered trust. And at the same time, the thing with Malcolm, though, is that Malcolm in the early goings of any game is too much of an asset for you to worry about. Um, and I think that was very obvious when you see him as a physical specimen who can help around the, the tribe, help around the, uh, shelter and with the challenges. So I think the fact that he was a complete unknown to his tribe, while other players may have had a more difficult time, the fact that Malcolm is such an asset in these other aspects of the game, he was kind of kept there and not really um, challenged. And at the same time, I think Malcolm also, again, has the wherewithal and the knowledge to know that I'm not going to come in and try and like control these people. I'm just going to sit back and let them soak me and get as much information out of me as they want. And then afterwards, they can decide whether or not they want to, you know, keep me around and work with me. Malcolm is going to be at Tribal Council again, right off the bat <laughs> on the Francesca vote. Does Malcolm play a big part in voting off Francesca first? No, at the end of the day, I don't think there was one person that played a big part in Francesca going out of the game, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, that man's name is Philip Shepard. Well, Malcolm does find himself again in this familiar position of, okay, I will defer leadership and he falls right in line in the early going and is a key cog in stealth rs 2.0 yeah yeah i mean um i forget what his moniker was the assassin or something like that yeah they're all just so so um synonymous with each other like, <laughs> <laughs> i mean so, i know he wasn't the dominatrix that one i know for sure no that was so, not him that was yeah. not malcolm okay according to survivor wiki malcolm was the enforcer the enforcer yes okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have this favorites tribe where they're able to avoid a tribal council. They're just really dominating what's going on over with uh, the fans time and time again. But Malcolm will continue to have a real nose for the hidden immunity idol. He's going to end up finding the idol over on favorites beach. This is um, an interesting point you bring up with the fact that the favorites were winning these many challenges. It's almost like Malcolm swapped out his first season of being the losing tribe every time to flip the table and end up being on the winning side a little bit. And I, the thing that's interesting here is that should they have lost, let's say, the second, the third, and went back to trouble a couple more times, would Malcolm be in the hot seat? Perhaps. I would say so. I think. To a certain point, the closer they get to um, trying to sniff out a swap or a merge, the closer Malcolm would have been to his death had they mm -hmm. been at that situation. It's kind of how Michaela went out, and I'm not saying they're similar, but Michaela went out right before um, because they were worried about their potential, uh, Michaela's potential going into a merge scenario. And I think that's a similar kind of mindset they would have had with Malcolm. So I'm glad. I'm really glad that he was able to, you know, they were able to win as many as they did. And I mean, kudos to him for finding yet another idol at that point. Uh, he, I believe he found it with Corinne, right? Yeah. So once again, poor Malcolm cannot have an idol to himself. 
Uh, he has to share it with somebody. It goes back to the fact that he wants the variables. As long as he knows where it is, he feels a lot more secure. And I believe, I mean, as someone who comes in as an unknown and probably still to, at this point in the game, they know the least about him than anyone else. I think it's a sigh of relief for him. Do you notice anything different about Malcolm's approach here in the early going in Survivor Caramelin? Not too much. I, to my uh, understanding, it was a little more reserved. Like, not that he wasn't reserved in Philippines, but I mean, he's kind of walking on eggshells. I mean, and I don't blame him. Look at the people. I mean, we go back to what I said with Abby Maria being a bit of a loose cannon, per se. I mean, watching the first episode of um, this season, the first two times we go over to the Favorites tribe, we are greeted with Dodo music, and mm-hmm. we see a big dive in on, you know, our buddy, the specialist and, you know, our other buddy, Brandon, going to do something to the rice hands. <laughs> so <laughs> Malcolm had to deal with such, such polarizing characters and not for the good reasons Um, twice back to back. And I mean, when you're with those type of people, the best thing you can do is stay silent and just let them, you know, have free reign on what they want to do as long as you're not the one being looked at. So we're going to get to a swap following uh, Brandon Hance's removal from Survivor Caramoan. And so Malcolm is going to go over to, uh, I believe, the new Gota tribe. Uh, and he's going to be there. Uh, he's outside away from Philip. Uh, he's away from his alliance mate in Corinne. And really, for the first time, I think that Malcolm is has the ability to sort of freelance. And uh, he, you know, Andrea is there with him. But it seems like he is starting to pick up a couple of other pieces, which he's going to use along the way in Reynolds and Eddie. And I believe this is um, the interesting point here is that if you look at the Eddie and the Reynolds um, prototype, and how they are, and how their characteristics are. And then you look over at the favorite tribe, and if you had to pick one person which they would probably feel the most loose with and would be um, the most willing to work with, it would be Malcolm, because he checks the boxes they believe they check. So it was very easy for Malcolm to come in, and he's a more experienced person. So the way I see it is like you come into university, and you apply, you try, try out for the varsity team, and then you get in as you know a freshman, and then you've got like the... Uh, uh, with the senior student, the sophomore student who takes you under their wing a little bit. They're in the same field you are, but they've got more experience or so you're willing to listen to them. And I think that's what Malcolm was able to do, kind of recruited them onto his team um, as someone with more experience about this game, more wherewithal for this game, but also someone that they could jive with and they could communicate with very effectively and very comfortably. So it kind of fell into his lap, but I mean, the pieces don't, put themselves together you have to do it so he did that perfectly okay so malcolm is with eddie and with Reynolds and trying to work with reichenbach and michael snow is connected to them as well eventually and he's with corinne but tell me is this something that malcolm says or is this something that i just inferred that it looks to me like malcolm is surrounding himself with people that can win challenges whereas in philippines malcolm surrounded himself with people that he was going to be able to beat in immunities. Now, ironically, he's going to lose that final immunity challenge, but he was certainly the most physically dominant player in that group. And for that, he ended up becoming targeted. So was Malcolm going out of his way here to sort of surround himself with meat shields and people that would not target him for being a physical threat? I am really glad you brought up this point, Rob, because I think 
and this might be too cute, and people will probably debate this, but I think this is one of the uh, early instances in the uh, the New Age game where we we see the uh, the male player, the uh, threatening male player, the physically dominant male player, decide that I cannot take these bigger guys out because if I take them out, the playing field isn't even for me. I end up tilting it to one side and I will be the target. So yeah, he does exactly as you said. He finds, he recruits the uh, the most able-bodied dummies possible um, to, you know, yeah. stand in front of him and, you know, look good for the cameras, but also be cocky and a little bit, you know, just not have the social chops to, you know, realize what he's doing and go do something else. Okay, so yeah. we get to the merge in Caramoan, and this is where, you know, I think that the pre-merge of Caramoan is, uh, is really, really slow. Uh, but I do think that things really pick up after the merge. And I think that the post-merge game in Caramon is actually probably pretty underrated. So Malcolm has been building up his crew over on the other side, where now he has Eddie and Reynolds, and Corinne is ready to go. And she has Michael Snow uh, with somebody who wants to work with her. And they are ready to get this sort of insurrection going to take control of the game after the merge. But... Unfortunately for Malcolm, that there are some problems here. What what goes wrong? So the first thing that would go wrong here is that the numbers were a little too slanted. I mean, they come in with eight favorites and four fans, and Malcolm and Corinne kind of end up taking the remaining fans in hopes to overthrow this whole uh, favorites domination that for some reason uh, Philip Shepard had complete control of. Um, but I think where it does go wrong is. And I can't believe she was such a pivotal part at this point was Sherry. Uh, Sherry decides against uh, going with her people and because she doesn't trust Reynolds and Eddie, which mm-hmm. is tough to do for her, I guess, because when they were on their own tribe back in the early days, they targeted that side immediately. They targeted, you know, the, the hot people. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so they, these, they separate. Sherry goes that way and they kind of it gets slanted. The numbers get slanted. They get blindsided early on with Corinne. Right. Corinne goes out. She becomes the merge boot. And there's a couple of different things where you really sort of like uh, kick yourself if you're a fan of that side that Philip is talking to Corinne and Philip talks about like, uh, well, we should do a split vote tonight because that's we get, we don't know who has the idol on that side. And Corinne's like, no, 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 no split vote. Uh, and really a split vote would have given their side enough numbers to be able to knock out Philip. And then also, I believe Corinne tells Dawn about the plan and then Dawn yeah. goes back and tells everybody. So uh, it turns into a, a big problem. And Malcolm is now really screwed. He's been compromised, but I don't think that he knows exactly to the level that he's been compromised. Now, now he knows. Now he knows we need to re- like the restructure needs to happen because he's left with the two guys and Mike Snow mm-hmm. and the two guys will be and like the thing is he can't like he doesn't have like I think for him Corinne was a good glue to have with Michael and Corinne was another great um not so much a meat shield but a mouth shield if that makes sense because mm-hmm. I feel like Corinne would have been the more out there louder person that if anyone was going to pay attention to a noise it would have been Corinne right um, and I think this is where he kind of gets shot in the foot but has to continue running the marathon Yeah, and I think he underestimates the returning players to a degree here because I think he tries to act, and correct me if I'm wrong, like he's still part of the favorites group, even though that he was clearly 
working against them, and he doesn't quite know to the point that he has been found out. Right, and I think the angle he might have tried to take was that, you know, that was Corinne's plan, not mm-hmm. mine. But at that point, the damage was done. I mean, as you've mentioned, the divide happened. And I mean, um, the favorites were kind of, again, I think they were a little, lot more wise than given credit to, where they sussed it out immediately and were just not willing to take him back under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. The ship had sailed. And I mean, at that point, it's almost easier to go through with the idea of, okay, we don't want Malcolm in our like core uh, six because of A, Z, B, C. Because Malcolm's such a big target at uh, at the end of it all. So I think for them, it was just too easy not to welcome him back, knowing that, nah, if we bring him back in, we have to try and get rid of him again. Okay, so two super important tribal councils uh, back-to-back for Malcolm. We end up at the point where Malcolm and the Amigos are starting to feel like uh, there is going to be uh, a move made against them by that big favorites group. We get to that tribal council that night and Reynolds stands up to play the hidden immunity that he had from before the merge. And he says he wants to play it on himself. But Malcolm who people have been throwing some shade at him at tribal council is convinced that he could be the person to go home. And he says, hold up, bro, you know, play that idol on me tonight, even though he actually has his own idol at that point. So could you speak to the significance of that move? Very underrated. I think regardless of the fact that he didn't even need the idol played on him, I think being able to convince someone not only at tribal council, but also to convince them to play an idol that there's like one of two in the season on him is a big deal. And it's not to, nothing should be taken away from it because it was Reynolds um, who played it because we, you know, people might not consider Reynolds to be some key strategist who would pick up on like, no, like I'm not going to risk myself going, but to be able to maneuver someone to play an idol for you like that, it's ballsy because he has his own <laughs> and he's still, <laughs> he's still, I mean, what if Reynolds said, no, would he have gotten up and played his idol? I mean, who knows, but no, it was amazing. I mean, to be able to maneuver someone last second like that in at a tribal where all the eyes are on you, amazing. It's not a bad move just to stand up and just have the confidence to say, hey, Puya, play the idol on me tonight. Like, I I mean, it would really take balls to, like, even Scott Pollard, when he wanted Ty to play the super idol, he's like, uh, Ty, you're going to, like, uh, play the idol? Like, he, he was kind of asking. I think maybe he's like, uh, all right, Ty, let's get that idol out now. I think if you like uh, act confident, I think then uh, who's going to big time you in that spot? Who's going to exactly. say no? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the key. The key is the confidence and Ravitas to ask for another idol. And the cojones to pull a move like that. Grande. <laughs> All right. So maybe Malcolm's signature move in his survivor career is coming up on the night of April 17th, 2013 for us at home. And so we get to the point in episode number 10 of Survivor Caramoan that Eddie and Reynolds and Malcolm have had it. They're clearly on the outs. Everybody wants them gone, starting with Malcolm, and they have had enough with Philip. So we have a situation where Malcolm has an idol. We end up with Reynolds winning immunity, and then Malcolm gets his hands on another idol at the same time. How does Malcolm find the second idol? So the second idol comes at the heels like at the heels of tribal, literally, literally 40 minutes, 45 minutes beforehand. Um, so he procures this and he doesn't hide this from the guys. Like they know what's going on. 
and production has rehidden an idol that Reynolds played the night before. So there's two idols back into circulation. Right, right. And, you know, they get their hands on it. And just the interest, something I want to quickly touch on before we go deep into this tribal. The tribal before, Andrea has an interesting line. Andrea says, make moves at the right time to totally change the game. Oh. Right, right. And Andrea says this at the previous tribal, uh, right before the um, vote happens and Reynolds gives his uh, idol to Malcolm. So then this night comes in and everyone's speaking very openly about wanting to get rid of these guys. And they're saying, they're like, okay, yeah, Eddie's the obvious choice here. We're going to vote for Eddie. We would have probably wanted to vote for Reynolds, but we wanna, we're going to vote for Eddie. And then that's when, you know, Malcolm has ha- heard enough. <laughs> Like tonight we're gonna try something different, and he whips him out, not pulling out a bolt from his pants. Not a crotch idol, right? Neither right, of them were crotch, crotch idols, right? You don't have to touch this, um, right? <laughs> yeah. So he uh, he takes out the idols. He, you know, like, I got one. We found one today. Gives it to Eddie, and I mean the scenes, the scenes at this tribe. I think this for me was um the first time I had seen a tribal really blow up that way until I um rewatched Heroes versus Villains after the fact. But the, for the first time ever, I was in my seat, just flabbergasted at the mouths and like the faces. And that's the first time I really noticed, damn, I guess tribal can be a little live because I'd gone into it thinking you kind of know what's going to happen probably. But this is where right. in this instance, they literally had no idea that was coming. So they had to switch it up. It's a great, great episode. I think Josh Wiggler and I spend an hour just on this tribal council in the evolution of strategy, talking this whole thing through. And of course, you know, we could nitpick it after the fact what they could have done differently. But just for a TV moment, this is really one of the best. Absolutely great. It's so satisfying also because, you know, a lot of the viewers have, you know, sort of uh, grown tired of Philip after two seasons of him playing so close together. And then you end up with him going out like this and Malcolm, who is, uh, you know, so popular at the height of his powers of pulling off this stunt as the underdog. And it really is a great, great move. They ultimately get Eric Riken back to flip. They win the battle here. Malcolm's going to go on to lose the war very shortly after this. But what a night. Amazing night. And I mean, the irony was not lost in me that a man with the last name Shepherd was corralling these people like sheep. And then the wolf in sheep's clothing took him out in one spell swoop. And it was just, it was great TV. It was absolutely great TV. And we're all team TV. So worked out good. You could even talk about how as Malcolm as a game changer, you know, we're talking about how he played with the Hidden Immunity Idol in Philippines, uh, but continuing that conversation, how he played here, and even just making that sort of a spectacle at Tribal Council of, just so you guys know, here's what we're doing tonight. I feel like that the idea of the Tribal Council being live, I think that, you know, I can't give all of the credit to Malcolm, but I do think that he's another really key figure in Things happening at Tribal Council and Tribal Council being much more unpredictable in the modern game than it was in Survivor's, you know, first 10 or 20 seasons of the game. I think that you owe a lot of that to Malcolm. I would agree. I would agree. I mean, the fact of the matter is the guy would bring the idol and we've seen people try and do this since we saw Mike Holloway Mm -hmm. try and do this same thing with the idol. Like, I have it. Shireen's going to take it. So what are you guys going to do? Um, so we've seen people at, try and emulate this uh, idol play 
We've seen a lot more of it in the last, I would say, maybe four or five seasons where tribal just becomes so much more lively and outspoken. And I think we can thank Tom for that. I think maybe not like full credit, but three quarters of the credit would go to Malcolm. It takes guts to just put everything on the table, put everything at risk for a minute at tribal because you want to say something and you want to change things up. And he does it successfully. Um, I believe he does it in a way where um, he garners the followers. Now, someone like Sierra Easton, who just pumps her tires at tribal and keeps saying, gotta make big moves. And that doesn't really, you know, work out well. But I think the fact that we see these things now, we can give credit to Malcolm. So Malcolm is going to go out at the next tribal council, but it looks like that there is some hope for Malcolm here at the final nine. We go to the auction in Survivor Caramoan and Malcolm is able to bid on a clue to the hidden immunity idol. Cochrane is going to bid on an advantage in the challenge. Uh, that's going to prove more helpful for Cochrane, who's going to win immunity in this episode. But Malcolm, ultimately, he's going to get the clue for the idol. Famously, Andrea is going to basically like run out the clock on him and just like uh, sort of stalk him to the point where I think he looked and he looked and he still never found it. And Andrea made sure that he never had it. And Malcolm is going to end up going out on a 333 vote and then 60 on the revote. So anything you want to touch on with Malcolm and uh, ultimately his final day in Survivor Caramoan? You talked about this on a podcast with um I think it was the cast assessment podcast for this season with Nicole where you had mentioned that the fact of the matter is this guy had like 2 to 3 weeks and to come back and then go back again which takes a toll on you physically. I think the amazing thing was we didn't really see Malcolm like suffer physically, but coming from behind again, playing as a complete stranger on a favorites tribe with all these returnees who don't know you, having to maneuver through that and survive that, and then having to be dealt a hand in the bottom and finding a coalition of his own to really challenge that. I think this season, as much as Malcolm played, in my opinion, a more complete game in his first season, I believe it's the fact that he was able to deal with the adversity he did in this season and the crazy gameplay he had to pull to, you know, make it further and further is why he's being brought back. Like, I think his first game is what we should remember him for. But I think because of the fireworks and the bells and whistles in the second game is why he's remembered ultimately. So Malcolm is going to go out of the game at the final nine. Uh, uh, he's going to vote for Cochrane to win. He actually gets sort of like, uh, you know, Cochrane does a really good job of winning Malcolm over at that final tribal council. Uh, Malcolm is going to be back at the reunion for Survivor Caramoan. And uh, this time around, does he lose the fan favorite to Brenda or he beats her out? He absolutely wins it. Wins it. Okay. Yeah. Look at Malcolm back to back. Fan favorites. Malcolm now goes into his post-survivor career by the summer of 2013. He ends up sort of staying out of the survivor limelight for the most part for hmm. uh, a good three years or so. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, if we're not going to count, you know, his uh, campaigns on RHAP for Mr. Survivor. Sure. And he's going to host such. some videos uh, with survivors and, and do some hosting for CBS. But right, he stays right. away from the game. 
for a few years. And I'm not sure if he was invited back for anything. I don't know that I I probably, you know, I don't think that there was another good time to bring him back that unless he was going to play three seasons in a row on survivor blood versus water, then it was second chances in survivor 31. And then we had new season. So this was really the first chance survivor had to bring Malcolm back for the game changers. I'd love to get your take on what adjustment do you think Malcolm is going to make after playing two times in a row in a year, then a layoff of about three and a half years before he plays again. So I think the one, the one main thing that I've heard him personally say that he would change up is um, he wants the, uh, the idol stigma to go away, which is difficult because I mean, at this point he's found, um, he can say that he's found what three and it's hard for someone that has that reputation to be able to shake off the reputation. But I think besides that, uh, Rob, if I'm being completely honest, I think he's got all the tools. I think the um, uh, as far as changing anything, all he needs to do is what he's been doing. He needs to come in, let someone else assume the power position, find a couple of shields and just ride it out and then play one day at a time. But I think we're going to get into this in a little more depth anyway. So has Malcolm said anything else in any of my conversations with him about one day going back? Did he seem interested? Yeah. So at, on the heels of your uh, exit interview with him for Karamoan, the last thing you asked him was, should we expect you to play again? And Malcolm said, yeah, Malcolm was in. Um, I think Malcolm's someone that has been through the runner. He has literally gotten as close as you can to Final Tribal without touching that seat. And on the flip side, he's been on a season where there were returnees, not full returnees, but half. and. I think Malcolm has faced as much difficulty as he can. He was on the one season where it rained pretty much the whole time. He was on a tribe that was famously decimated um, down to the final two people. And he's had to coexist with not one, not two, but three of the most arguably loony um, survivors that we've seen. In um, Who are you counting? I mean, I'm definitely counting Abby Maria. Who's your third? The specialist and Brandon Hans. Oh, okay. Right. I mean, am I missing someone? No, I mean you get some honorable mentions on that list too. I think, but um, oh, sure. yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. And I, and I think that's the thing is that um, the fact that he's been closely knit with some of these people and has had to like actively work with them, not so much with Abby um, initially because he was not on her tribe, but with Philip and with Brandon, and just being able to deal with those big personalities. And being able to deal with people who he knows either, um, you know, are soaking up camera time or are very strategic or are looking for idols. Like Malcolm's kind of had his hand in all of the uh, cookie jars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes, he certainly so I, has. <laughs> yes, I think um, any flavor you throw at him, he'll be able to deal with. OK, so Malcolm only has real survivor playing experience with one person that's back in this season, and that is former Miss Survivor to his Mr. Survivor, Andrea Belke from Survivor Caramoan. Now, we touched on their interaction from Survivor Caramoan, and we all remember when she was sort of like the annoying kid sister that wouldn't leave him alone when he was trying to find the idol. Do you get the sense that he would be interested in working with Andrea again, or do you think that that is going to be somebody that he is going to want to target immediately? I think with Malcolm, uh, what I've gathered from just listening to him on some of the uh, the more serious game podcasts and then listening to some of the more loose, um, fast and loose, like the 
uh, Mr. Survivor debates. Um, Malcolm seems like a very not. I wouldn't say I don't want to say forgiving because there wasn't really much to forgive on. I think he's someone that can roll with the punch as well. I don't see him as a grudgy type. I don't see him, uh, you know, saying, "Okay, you didn't let me find that idol four years ago. I'm coming for you now." I think Malcolm knows and understands that. You know, bygones be bygones, and the and this is a game. And I think it was in his um, Ponderosa video after Philippines, where he literally says that he's like, "It's like a game of Monopoly or a game of poker. I came here to win, and I didn't win, but I gave it my all, and that's all I could ask for." And to take this back to the Andrea question, I think if he sees it as a benefit to play with her, he will put it as he will definitely go for that. However, if Malcolm finds a better thing going on in the tribe he's in or early on he finds people like let's say he finds an alliance early on that's got a majority numbers then i don't see him potentially working with her but I, if he is he going to leave the door open for possibility and not write it off immediately absolutely turning to some of the people that are going to be on malcolm's tribe the big figure here that we have to talk about, and we touched on him briefly in terms of this through line of the evolution of Survivor Idol play mm-hmm. from Malcolm to Tony. Do you think that Malcolm is somebody who is going to be able to want to work with Team TV? I think he will definitely allow it to happen. I think the best thing for Malcolm is the fact that he's on the tribe with Tony. Yes. Because it could go one of two ways, Rob. Either Tony is able to get people and, you know, Malcolm can just dive into those numbers or the numbers are against Tony right off the bat and he can easily, you know, sleep easy knowing he doesn't have to, you know, worry. So I think Malcolm's finding himself in a position here where working with Tony will only benefit him. I don't think there's drawbacks for him specifically. If Malcolm's biggest concern was people worried that he has the (laughs) idol, he could not ask for a better situation than to be on a tribe with Tony Vlachos. We talked about Malcolm as the Jim Halpert and, you know, he works best when he has a Michael Scott to follow around. I mean, it's such a great relationship for Malcolm to have Tony there for Tony. He's going to hopefully he's going to want to work with Malcolm. He could look at Malcolm as like a new version of the young lad, which can be somebody uh, that he can work closely with. And it would just be so great to have Malcolm and Tony together. I agree. I think it would be an amazing duo to uh, watch out for if it does pan out. And Malcolm is a really great social player that he can get along with all different kinds of people. He can get along with the guys. He can get along with the women. He can get along with the jocks. He can get along with the people who are more of the not jocks. And he's uh gets along with the moms. He gets along with that. He, he's, he's great in terms of the different types of people that he can get along with. So do you see anybody that stands out to you as another great potential ally for Malcolm? So from his tribe specifically, I think Aubrey is another person that he could get along with very well. Now, I don't think that I think the interesting part here would be, I do not personally, I don't see a scenario where Tony and Aubrey are on the same side. I think they would both be on opposite sides personally, but I think after, cause I, what I did was, um, a couple days ago, I was doing a draft with some friends, so I went through all the bios and I wrote down all the uh, little tidbits. And looking at Aubrey's, reading her bio, I remember reading it because it was not that long ago. Right? So I remember reading it the last time and then seeing how she was in the first episode and being like, 
well, yeah, that's kind of what I expected. But then reading it after she's played her game, she fits that bio more now. Before I looked at it, it almost was sarcastic. Now I'm looking at it and I'm reading it as serious as I can. And Aubrey is someone who's mentioned that she wants to be working with people who are easy to read um, in the sense that they're very, um, what's it called? They're very open to play. They're very open to talk and they're not um, sneaky or backtracking or anything Mm -hmm. like that. She wants someone she's able to understand. So someone like, for example, a Debbie, no, no, no. But someone like a Malcolm, yes, yes, yes. Like, I think these two would get along well. And I think uh, Aubrey is someone that would be a great ally for Malcolm. I think the first time around, Malcolm pairs up with uh, Denise, who in the beginning, no one thinks of much. No one thinks of as a threat. But if he is able to pair up with someone like Aubrey, or in my opinion, someone like who's not on his tribe, but someone like a Sari, um, I think would really, really be a great duo. Should he decide not to go with the Team TV side? Okay, Priya, let's go a little rapid fire. I'm going to throw some people out at you and you give me your uh, quick reactions. Uh, Malcolm and Sandra, is that a relationship that can work? It definitely could. Absolutely. Why? Um, Because this is the interesting thing with his tribe is that both Sandra and Tony are here. And I would love to see a let's get this person out because he's a winner. Let's get her out because she's a winner right off the bat. And I think if that's the way that the lines are going to be set, I think he would get along well with either. I think he would have an embarrassment of riches to choose at that point. And I think at the end of the day, Sandra's mentality is not going to change. I don't think she's, you know, coming in to go out first or to, you know, play too heavy. And I think the best part about this season um, for Malcolm, I know you just asked about Sandra, but for this season, the fact that it's called Game Changers and the fact that the theme has always been really pushed, especially in the early goings, someone like a Sandra is not going to care about that. She's not going to think, okay, how can I make the big moves? So I think Malcolm's someone like that too, where I think on the heels of him doing the idle things, he's going to want to come in and be a little more subtle. So I think if Sandra shows him that she wants to do the subtle thing, they can go and do it together. Malcolm famously replaced Troy Zan in Survivor, Karamoan, took his spot. Is that going to be a grudge that Troy Zan is going to bring into this game? I think Troy's I might come in with a little bit of beef, but I think that beef will quickly be replaced once he gets five minutes of conversation with Malcolm. Yeah. I certainly believe that he's going to resonate with Malcolm immediately. And he's just been, I think someone like Troy's has been waiting too long to play and he might come out of the gates a little too hot, but I don't think Malcolm's going to be someone. He's going to be like, you took this from me. I will take it from you. That's not. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Malcolm kinship with Zeke being the only man who is there from a season that nobody knows who he is. A hundred percent. I think the one person in this entire tribe that can actually understand what Zeke or Michaela are going through is Malcolm because he played in that position as a back, as a back to back returnee who no one knew of. So I think Malcolm is going to be very open uh, with Zeke, very welcoming, let's just say, just so he can get all the information. But also on the flip side, I think Zeke's a very open person too. We saw in his season, Zeke is someone like Malcolm who got along with many different demographics. Um, it didn't matter who you were, how old you were, Zeke got along with you. So I think if the two of them come into the, uh, come into a swap or a merge or something, and they're both there, and they don't have their lines completely drawn, they could definitely get along well. Malcolm, 
is often compared to Ozzy or as a more strategic version of Ozzy. How do you think that Malcolm does with the real thing? I think Malcolm will take the phrase of another game changer will smoke Ozzy. I think he will. This is the season where he gets to finally prove that they are not the same. They're not the same. I think. Yeah. And I think that will he work with Ozzy. He'll work with anybody. I think he'll work with anybody. And I think um, Ozzy is the premier meat shield for him. Um, should he decide to go through down that route. And I think he will, Rob. I think the fact that, um, uh, as I've discussed earlier with you privately offline, um, when I went into season 31, I was looking at this uh, cast and I was doing my draft because I love drafts. And my first, I was looking at Jeremy. I liked Jeremy. I found him entertaining. I wanted to root for him. However, I decided to put that aside because he's too big of a threat. He's physically dominant looking. He's strategic. I don't think he'll make it that far. Look at it now. He is our winner for that season. So I think someone like Malcolm has watched that season without a doubt because he is a fan of the show. But also, I think he's going to emulate a little bit of that. I think he's going to get, you know, a little bit of meat shield here, a little bit of camouflage there and bring them together. And I think someone like Ozzy fits the mold perfectly for him in the uh, end game um, or the further down, let's say the merge. If um, they both end up meeting up, I think Malcolm would benefit from having someone like Ozzy stand in front of him. And that would be interesting. Now the worry for me is someone like Ozzy thinking, you know, along the lines of, Oh, it's me versus Malcolm. May the best man win. That's where I'd be worried, but I'm not really too worried about that. Is Malcolm more likely to align with the bros or more likely to align with the women in this season? I think, I think Malcolm will end up aligning with some bros, with his bromigos, and might not be through his own choice. I personally do not think Malcolm's going to land there and start, you know, formulating what he wants. I think he's going to figure out what options are in front of him and choose from them. But I think he he might not have to worry about the bro thing immediately, because if it doesn't like the, the problem with this cast, the problem with this season, Rob, is that some of these characters are just so polarizing. and so much in control of their own fate the first time around that it's interesting to see how it's going to be when they all mesh together. Uh, on his tribe, looking at it right now, right off the bat, I think he'll get along with both sides fine, but I think he's going to go with the bros to start. The biggest person in this cast that Malcolm needs to worry about targeting him? Um, right off the bat, I would say Sierra Easton. Wow, why? So Malcolm, uh, was he did a Cambodia recap with you. And this is where we get Malcolm's probably hottest take out there. He wasn't a fan of Kelly Wentworth. Oh. He was not a fan of Kelly Wentworth, you know, the uh, OG fan favorite. Don't matter. Mm-hmm. So he's not a fan of her. And in the process, he kind of seemed very down on Sierra. Now, I know that um, Malcolm's the type of person that transcends game talk. You know, when you meet Malcolm in person, I think he's one of the last people you're going to meet and think for a second that he's talked smack about you or bring that up because he's able to really quickly, you know, deflect that. However, um, Sierra big moves Easton. I am worried for because I think she's one of the few people, maybe her and Aubrey on his tribe are the few people that can look at this tribe and not look at the winners as the bigger threats, but look at someone like Malcolm who's a better all around player as a bigger threat. So that's where I would be worried. However, if, Malcolm's already got on the good side and with the rest of the tribe, they're not going to have the opportunity to get rid of him. 
So I would say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to firmly plant the flag on Sierra Easton for now. Puya, what's your prediction for Malcolm in season 34? You know, I know that my bias has been showing a little bit. I'm a little, you know, fanboy of Malcolm. Just how Malcolm was a fanboy of John Cody. But, <laughs> <laughs> you forgot about that. Yeah. Right. No, he was enamored. Absolutely. Yes. Candace, watch out. Yeah. So if I had to pick, you know, this guy's a, one of my favorites. And I haven't told you this yet, Rob, but I am working on an anthem for him that I'll probably send to you at some point once it's done. Wow. But with all that being said, to really, really put the flag on this, Malcolm's our winner this season. So you're saying come June, Malcolm Freeberg could be losing the Survivor Championship belt? I mean, maybe, maybe he okay. keeps it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a world. What a world it would be. Absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Well, look, uh, that would be uh, a very fun outcome to the season to see Malcolm come back and fulfill the manifest destiny to come back and get the Survivor Championship. So uh, great job, Puya. Very, very fun to Thank talk you. through the Survivor career. You certainly did your homework. I appreciate all of the research you did. I'm sure the listeners did as well. If people want to reach out to you about any of your hot takes here today, mm-hmm. Well, How do they find you? Whether you were agreeing with me or disagreeing with me, you can find me at Puyaism on Twitter. I welcome all mentions, whether angry or happy. <laughs> okay. And what's the hashtag? Snap. I had one. Hashtag Malculations. Okay. That's what I was thinking too. Great job. All right. Puya, thank you so much. Uh, this was so much fun and really looking forward to seeing Malcolm this season. As am I, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care, buddy. All right, everybody, there you have it. There's Puya talking about Malcolm Freeberg. And Puya has something else for you. After my interview with Lindsay about Sarah Lucina, Puya has recorded his own original Malcolm anthem, which I will have at the end of the podcast. I'll also have a link for you to play it on the show page for this podcast at robhasawebsite.com. So stay tuned at the end of the podcast for the original Malcolm Freeberg anthem from And if you want to know more about Malcolm, of course, you can hear all that we had to say about Malcolm in Survivor Philippines and in Survivor Caramoan in The Evolution of Strategy, which Malcolm himself attempted to listen to in the pregame. And his complaint was he had to turn off the evolution of strategy because it was too much Penner. He said he couldn't take it anymore. And Penner said, that's what I said when I tried to watch Wayfair. I doubt he said that. I doubt that's what he said. But if you can handle all that penner, I think you can handle all that penner. Go ahead and check out the Evolution of Strategy at evolutionofstrategy.com. And of course, if you've never listened to it, chapter one, all about Borneo, is completely free at evolutionofstrategy.com. Okay, so let's get into our next interview. I spoke with Lindsay Wilson, another one of our listeners, and we had a very interesting conversation about Sarah Lucina and where Lindsay believed it all went wrong for her in Survivor Kagiyan and much more. So here is my interview with Lindsay Wilson. All right, so let's get into talking about another one of our game changers coming back for season 34. Today, we are talking about a woman who was my one-time winner pick all the way back in Survivor Kagiyan, one of my favorite seasons and maybe my favorite all new player season of all time. It's either that or uh, Pearl Islands if I'm taking myself and the Amazon out of the running. So very excited to get into talking about Sarah Lucina with Lindsay Wilson. Lindsay, how are you? 
Uh, yes, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to talk to you. A little nervous, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. That Look, I don't have a bag of tricks or anything I'm going to pull out of my sleeve that you need to be worried about, okay? Good, good. Yeah, you said the key to happiness is low expectations. <laughs> so I'm going into this just thinking like, if I'm not the you know, least compelling person you've ever had, I'll consider it a success. So <laughs> okay, we'll just leaf it at that. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and so, all right, Lindsay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so people know who you are as our Sarah Lucina expert? Sure. So basically in my real life, I'm an epidemiologist. My background is in harm reduction and HIV and hepatitis C research. So you know, really light stuff that I talk mm-hmm. about in my real life. So <laughs> Survivor is a nice way for me to sort of unwind and think about some other stuff. And I was really excited to get the opportunity to watch Kagi on again, because I think it's probably up there for me too in my top five seasons for sure. So top yeah, five, baby. So that's uh, me in a nutshell. <laughs> All right. So Sarah Lucina, here she is coming back. And certainly I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about Tony, both in the original retelling of uh, Survivor Kagi and what we could expect in season 34. So uh, first off, in terms of Sarah, why is uh, she somebody that you felt like that you were going to be able to represent here as a game changer expert? So I guess there were two big reasons why I picked her. One is sort of more general rather than specific to her. So for me, I'm really excited to hear all of the Game Changer podcasts, but the ones that are the most interesting to me are the ones that are maybe less obvious candidates. So I don't necessarily need someone to talk to me for an hour, but why Tony's good at Survivor, why Ceri's good at Survivor. But I am really interested in hearing why some of these maybe question mark players were asked back for any All-Star season, let alone one that's called Game Changers. So for me, Sarah was one of those people that I was interested in talking about. And then just to be honest, it was also a bit of a strategic decision for me where I was thinking probably you'd have a lot of people who wanted to talk about Tony. Probably you'd have a lot of people who thought like, no one's going to pick Haley. Let me go after Haley. So I figured I would, you know, paraphrase Dwight Schrute. You never want the person who is the person you most suspect. You never want the person you least suspect. You want the person you most medium suspect. So that's who I was thinking Sarah would be. And actually on the rewatch, I think that's kind of who she is coming into the game. And I think that that's going to really help her out. Okay, so here she is. She was somebody that I really went right to in terms of watching all of those bios and videos that they had on the website about her. And I felt like, Something was like, oh, I think I really feel I feel like a cop is going to win this season. It's got to be her. No, I didn't think that. But I did like that she was very perceptive in those pregame interviews where she's like, there's a guy here. I think he's a cop. I can tell I'm around cops all day. He carries himself like a cop. And her cop dar is unquestioned. Definitely. Amazing cop dar for Sarah Lucina. And of course, you know, she would go on to have a big feud with Tony with Cass, really did uh, ruffle and rustle a couple of feathers along the way. And so now here she is back to be another feisty contestant in Survivor. So let's go back and take a look at her game in Survivor Kagiyan. And that was, of course, the original Brains versus Beauty versus Brawn. And right out the gate, she was selected as the captain of the Brawn tribe. So she does exude leadership, Lindsay. You know what? She also took the map in the beginning, which should have been the thing that killed her game, but she managed to you know, bounce back from that. It is at times a bit of a uh, kiss of death, but uh, she was able to do okay. <laughs> and would you say that she was the unquestioned leader of the Brawn tribe? I don't know if I would go that far, but they all seemed very willing to have her be the one to make the decision. And incidentally, it was actually Trish probably who pushed hardest for her to be the leader. And then that ended up backfiring on her when Sarah's like, yep, you're the weakest. 
So yeah. I'd say probably it was Trish who had the most confidence in her. I feel like everybody felt pretty good about her leading them for that decision. But I also feel like pretty much as soon as they got back to Braun Beach, it wasn't really her in that role anymore. I don't know how much ownership she should want to take over being at the helm of that group because there were a lot of problems going on. You sort of had Cliff Robinson who was doing his own thing at times and he had Wu and Lindsay, Lindsay, uh, the other Lindsay, uh, not you, uh, who were under his wing. And then Tony was off doing his own thing. And he was sort of like uh, connecting with Trish. And eventually Sarah is going to get caught up in this whole thing with Tony about is Tony a cop or a construction worker going back? Was that a bigger deal than we remember or just sort of like a funny moment in that season? I feel like it was a big deal for Sarah in the sense that as soon as she found out that she was actually right about Tony being a cop, it was like he broke her. Like she was sort of describing herself as this human lie detector and she was going to be so awesome at figuring out everybody's lies and she was going to be able to get to the heart of everything. And as soon as she found out that she was right about Tony, she's like, yep, clearly this is working well. I don't need to question anyone ever again. So I feel like that really threw her off her game basically for the rest of the time that she was out there. So I don't know if that's that's a real thing, but that's the sense that I had was that she just got completely blinded by being right that one time. <laughs> now, the Braun tribe, they did live up to the name and they never ended up going to a tribal council during their time as the Braun tribe. And I think that a big part of that was Sarah and her ability to do puzzles as well. She wasn't just physically strong. Definitely. And I was thinking that it was funny because I feel like I hadn't remembered that she was always put in these clutch positions at the challenges, but she pretty much closed all of the puzzles for them uh, before the swap. And then even after that, she was put on the puzzles in spite of the fact that she was there with the all of the remaining brains. So yeah. I feel like she's pretty good at that. And that's, that really says something. I really remember that there's like one of the puzzles that she has like all like blood on her hand and she's getting like blood all over the puzzle. I know. She's like, I didn't even notice I was bleeding everywhere, but that's what we do on the Braun tribe. Yes. And then professionally, did you spot that right away? <laughs> yeah. In the sense that I'm really grossed out by blood. Like, oh, why is this happening? Someone get her a bandaid. <laughs> So the there's a big caper that's going on in the pre-merge in Kagiyan where Sarah decides that she wants to throw one of the challenges because she wants to vote off, I believe, Cliff Robinson. Could you speak to that decision yes. a little bit and what she's thinking at that point in time? Yeah, so in her mind, she's thinking... First of all, Tony tells her that Cliff and Lindsay have decided to come for her. Yes. And as I said, I feel like she gets so thrown off by him being a cop that she's like, well, he must be telling the truth. I feel like Lindsay was actually probably her closest ally at the time, but she never bothers to actually check in with her and see if that's the truth. And she said, I think in her exit interview with you, that she and Cliff were sort of behaving as if they did want to get rid of Sarah. So mm -hmm. she didn't bother to follow up. So she said, OK, there's a swap coming. We need to make sure we have the numbers going in. And Cliff and Lindsay are not actually our numbers. So we should throw the challenge. That said, I mean, it didn't work out. But if it had, and assuming there was no swap, I think this was a really bad choice, probably. Because if you look at the people that she's there with, she says, OK, we need to get rid of Cliff and Lindsay. If she had managed to get back with them and that four had been tight, she and Cliff and Lindsay and Wu, they're managing to get rid of Trish probably first and then Tony. I really like her chances with the brain trust of Cliff, Lindsay and Wu. Like she looks really good with them, whereas, you know, Trish and Tony are unquestionably the top two players on the Braun tribe and it's not close. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that was probably a bad move for her to be like, OK, I'm going to get rid of all the people that I could ostensibly beat. In my mind, that was probably a bad call. Granted, there was a swap, so this never would have played out anyway. but. 
just uh, from a strategic point of view, that was probably the wrong choice. Cliff Robinson stays in the game. That's the challenge where Cliff Robinson has to end up shooting basketballs against Spencer. And then, you know, there's all these people on the Braun tribe that are trying to throw the challenge, but they still <laughs> end up beating. They're so mad that they can't do it. Yeah. And so instead of Cliff Robinson, my friend Jatia ends up going home in that episode. And we get to the swap. And Sarah Lucina, I think, ends up in a pretty good position where she's there with three brains, three beauty, and she's sort of the kingmaker in that spot post-swap. Yeah, and it was funny because she actually probably could have been an easy vote because it was so obvious that the beauties were so fractured. So they knew that they probably at least had Morgan, so the brains would have had the numbers. But Sarah had nobody. She really had no alliances on that side. So she could potentially have been an easy person to get out. But her name's not even on the block. Like she manages to convince them after the whole top five baby incident that she is completely with them, that she's done with Tony and Trish. She's never going back, even though presumably she'd been saying that for three days. And then it was the top five baby thing that really cemented that. So obviously she'd been thinking about it. And we go on to see that she is going to continue to think about it in the next episode. But her name's never even on the block. She's just the one who... You know, she's with the brains and that's that. So they decide to just let her go through. That almost was their undoing. So in going back and watching that, do you think that she handled all of that correctly? The Alexis vote specifically? The Alexis vote, yeah, when they go to tribal council. Yeah, I think so. I mean, she repeatedly says anything that gets it off of me is good. And she actually demonstrates a fair bit of flexibility about whether it's going to be Alexis or Jeremiah. She really doesn't care as long as it's not her. But then you go on to see that she obviously immediately forgets that that is a good policy to live by in Survivor because of the next vote, she becomes completely inflexible and that costs her her game. So I think she did a good job handling it there, but I don't think that, that skill continues throughout the rest of the game. Yeah, post-swap Kagiyan, it does feel like that they have something going into the merge with the three brains plus Sarah plus uh, Jeremy slash Jeremiah and Morgan. That, okay, that six is going to stick together. But I feel like what happens and what is her ultimate undoing, I feel like that Sarah starts to get a big head. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a very fair assessment. Uh, when they get back from tribal council after the Alexis vote, they say, OK, we need to pick someone that we're going to vote out next time. And they decide that it's going to be either Jeffra or Trish. And that seems to be fine. But then the next day, once she sees how seriously she's being courted by the other side, all of a sudden she's like, oh, I am the one who has the most power here. I'm President Sarah. I get to choose. And she tells her alliance it has to be Tony or it has to be LJ or it has to be Wu. Once Wu wins immunity, he's obviously off the table, but she absolutely refuses to go with their plan anymore because she just has so much power. And she has the audacity to go to Cass and say, well, you know, they told me that I could pick if I went with that side. So just the, the poor decisions at that moment are just yeah. unbelievable. And I do think that they stem from, you know, having this big head of, you know, look how much everybody wants me to work with them. Yeah, her boot episode is kind of a rough one because she just appears extremely overconfident and overplaying her position. She's going back and forth where she's talking with Tony, she's talking with her side, and, you know, she really is clear about what she wants to do in the game and to the point where Cass ends up being really alienated because Spencer and Tasha seemingly are just really just kissing up to Sarah because they feel like that she's the swing vote and it's Cass who is pulled aside by Trish who says, Hey, give me a name, vote with us, tell us whatever you want to do. And chaos Cass is really born at this moment when she decides that, Hey, how about we vote out Sarah? Sarah thought she was the president 
well, why don't we impeach her? <laughs> exactly. And that inflexibility actually would have cost her anyway, too, because she said, you know, it has to be LJ and it has to be Tony. And I guarantee you, Tony doesn't have an idol. And if they had said, OK, we'll vote for Tony. And then they see he has an idol. And then they say, OK, the only other person Sarah said she'd vote for is LJ. Either way, she's getting idled out of the game, even if Cass doesn't flip. So that really was just just terrible. I feel like she has one of the worst boot episodes of anybody coming into this season. The Survivor Wiki, of course, uh, a favorite of Andrew Savage. They have a lot of the confessionals transcribed from uh, Survivor Kagiyan. And Sarah has a memorable one where she says, we have a solid five, a solid five in me. I can make the choice. I think there are harder competitors on Tony's side, and I would rather go along with the weaker side. So I am with Nuapari. I think we're solid. The only rift that we have is between Cass and I. I will make the decision on who goes home next. I get to decide. I'm the president right now. Yeah, it's not a good look. Not a good look at all. (laughs) And it's funny, too, because this is exactly the opposite of what she said she was going to do coming into the game. She was sort of talking about like an Adam Klein strategy of I'm going to keep some of these meat shields around and let them take all the bullets. And then at the very end, I'll take them out. And instead, she's like, I'm going to get rid of all the threats so that I'm the biggest threat in the game. Like it, it just it all fell apart for her. It's very unfortunate. And so Sarah ends up going off and becomes the first member of the Kagiyan jury. She even gives Tony her vote in the end of the game. But somewhere in between the taping of the season and I guess the airing of her boot episode, she seems to have reopened a rift with Tony. Yeah, it seems like all the stuff that happened on Twitter was with her exit press. There was a lot of stuff going on there about him saying, you swore on your badge and you went back on your word, too. I don't know why you're being such a hypocrite, Sarah. And then by the time the reunion rolls around, they're not even speaking. So I actually think that animosity is a big part of the reason Sarah's cast. I think probably they asked Tony to come back first. And then once he said yes, they're like, all right, Sarah, you can come back, too. Okay, So do you feel like that the rift between... Tony and Sarah is over things that Tony revealed in his confessional when she saw watching the episode or over things Tony was saying on social media? I think probably both. I think it started with her seeing the episode and then she was getting kind of upset about that, that he was so, I guess, cavalier about swearing on his badge and saying how unimportant it was to him. Like, I couldn't care less if I went back on my word and that doesn't matter to me. I'll swear on anything. I think probably that upset her because when she was talking to you, she said she felt like that sort of dishonored the profession and she didn't want to dishonor like fallen officers and all of that. So she took that really seriously. And I think that's what started her sort of hurt feelings or being upset about it. And then the things that she said on the exit press made Tony get upset and then he attacked her on social media and then it all just Mm -hmm. kind of snowballed from there. So I think it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, if I recall correctly, so I had interviewed Sarah and I'm not sure if my interview with Sarah was what Tony found objectionable, but then he really did take to Twitter. And for new Survivor fans, you may not know this because Tony has deleted all of his tweets. Uh, This is really no record of any of this. (laughs) But Tony used to be very active on social media during the season. And Kageyama was one of the seasons that had the most activity about the show and sort of like extracurricular activities going on on Twitter specifically during that season. And so he was really upset about things that she was saying. And then she was coming back after him. Let's go to the reunion show. What happens at the reunion between what Sarah is saying about Tony? So basically Jeff says to her, and it's funny because Jeff interrupts her probably like 15 times trying to get her to say, I'm mad at Tony. But basically what he asks her is, how's the relationship now? You guys still in cops are us. Are you still speaking? And she basically says, I was hurt by the things he said on social media. We had a relationship at the end of the game. I gave him my vote. But then all the things he was saying to me on social media, I got really upset. And then Jeff keeps interrupting her and finally just says, are you speaking? And she says, no. 
they are no longer speaking and Cops R Us is now just a group of one and that is her. So, so kicked him out and I don't think there's any stronger insult than that. Hold on. Oh my God. How could I get kicked out of Cops R Us? I started Cops R Us. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the greatest insult of all. Yeah. You're out, Tony. <laughs> so do you feel like that this rivalry between Sarah and Tony would still be hot at the time that we come into Survivor 34. I mean, Sarah went on to have a baby. I think she announced that she was pregnant at the Kagiyan finale. A lot of time has passed. Uh, Tony would go on to uh, bring another baby into the world, right? Yes, I think that's the case. So all these Uh, life events happening, Lindsay, do you think that they would still be keeping up this feud from so many years ago? So, again, I think that's the reason Sarah was cast is because they think that, you know what, I almost made the joke and then I thought it was too feeble a pun. So I'm (laughs) glad you went there. (laughs) Oh, I believe that Sarah and Cass from my last interview with Cass, I believe that they had also buried the hatchet. And I think that uh, they had gotten along well. I think that even uh, Cass and Trish, if I'm remembering my facts correctly, have buried yes, the I hatchet. They also buried the hatchet. Yes. All yes. just a big happy family now in Kagiyan. Mm, uh, well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think probably for the most part, it's not really a hot feud anymore. But as you often talk about, it's all about perception, right? So I feel like if I were Tony and I was out there and I was seeing who was on the other side or on the same tribe, depending how they're split up. And I see that Sarah's out there. I probably would say, oh no, here's someone who hates me. Here's someone who's going to be gunning for me. And as soon as you think of that, my guess would be Tony's going to think Sarah's gunning for him. And as a result, he's going to want to get her out. So I don't know that necessarily the feud is necessarily still active, but I feel like there's probably going to be some concern on both sides that there might be some animosity lingering or maybe some grudge holding happening. So if they have that perception, that could be a bigger deal than if it's actually real or not. But Lindsay, I think that you're looking at things on a surface level and not on a Vlacos level. That What do you think is the possibility <laughs> that sometime in between when people are being cast and when they go out to play, Tony puts in a call to Sarah and says, hey, Sarah, so everybody thinks that we're going to fight. So why don't we play that we're going to fight and we're going to have a whole, whole huge rivalry and then you and I will get Cops or Us back together. Do you think is that possibility? Could Tony be and Sarah be faking a feud with everybody? We talked about this going back into Survivor Cambodia. Like, oh, do Cass and Spencer really hate each other? Are they really <laughs> going to be fighting the whole time? What if these people that we think are going to fight actually are working together and in sort of like a genius style reveal, we find out that they were working together the whole time. <laughs> it's definitely possible, but I really well, think if you the Moby. played on a season, yeah. <laughs> you've played on a season with Tony and you're silly enough to think he's with me till the end again, probably that's your fault. That's your bad. You probably shouldn't be that trusting. And I think that's what cost Sarah the most in her first game was that she was so trusting And I think probably she's going to be trying this time around to trust a little bit less. And my concern is maybe that she'll come across as really paranoid. But in particular, I think she would be very wary about trusting Tony. Whether or not it's real, Tony definitely did make that phone call. (laughs) It's just trying. Definitely. Yes, I think you're probably right about that. (laughs) He's totally planning on screwing her over again. And she's like totally planning on revenge. But they're both like, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I like that. Yeah, cops are us again. Yeah, Yeah. you can definitely come back in, Tony. (laughs) Okay. Before we start to talk about Sarah and the people that she's going to be working with or 
are working against uh, besides Tony. Are there any other misconceptions that people have about Sarah Lucina 1.0? So I think probably people think that she had a really garbage game just overall. Uh, in particular, I think people probably think that she had a bad social game because the thing that you remember about Sarah and certainly the thing that I remembered about Sarah was that last day. And that's such a bad episode. It makes her look so bad. Like she can't communicate with humans successfully at all. So I think actually there was a lot of evidence in the game that she actually has a pretty good social game from what I've seen. Uh, she got along with everybody on Braun. She obviously had a relationship with Cliff and Lindsay until Tony tanked that. She had cops are us going with Tony. She seemed pretty jovial, genial with Wu. And she always said in her exit press that she wanted to get back with Trish after the merge. So that seemed all good there. Again, on Nuapari, once the swap happened, she managed to convince everybody that she was with them. She was done with Braun. She potentially could have been an easy vote, but they managed to, uh, they seemed to believe that she was going to be loyal to them. And I think that's probably pretty telling. Uh, but I actually think probably the best example of her social game is from her Ponderosa videos, which again, is not during the game. But if you watch Morgan's Ponderosa video. I feel like Morgan is not someone who is easily impressed. She <laughs> seemed to give that impression in the game. And yet, her entire Ponderosa video is her just bonding with Sarah and being like, oh my god, Sarah's so genuine and awesome and I'm giving her a makeover and we're best friends now. I feel like if you can win over Morgan, probably you're a pretty cool person to be around. So I, f I think that that is a misconception that we may have uh, from the game and I think it's probably one that she will be able to uh, to correct. And I think that she'll do well socially in the game. What are the chances that Sarah's loved ones visit will be from Morgan McIcloud? <laughs> Would that be the best family visit ever? I think so. Sarah, I'm here to see you. <laughs> I need Josh here <laughs> to you do. up on Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need Josh here to do Morgan impressions. Let me also ask you about any adjustments that you think Sarah needs to make. So if you could have done some sort of like a coaching call with Sarah before she left, what do you think is the biggest adjustment she needs to make for season 34? So I think there are two, really, one of which I've sort of discussed already is the flexibility thing. She was so completely unwilling to vote for anyone other than Tony or Wu or LJ that she basically just alienated Cass to the point where she wanted to vote her out. That was the moment when Cass said, OK, now I know that Sarah is not here for the alliance. She's here for herself, which is, of course, what she should be doing. But you don't want to let your alliance know that. So having a little bit of flexibility would have been good for keeping Cass in and also it would have kept her from being idled out of the game, which again is what it would have happened even if Cass hadn't left. So, I mean, assuming they hadn't gone for Jeffrey and they just listened to Sarah's plan. Mm -hmm. So I think probably, you know, she has a chance now to play with Sandra. Listen to Sandra and realize that as long as it's not you, that's a good thing. Be a little bit more flexible. Uh, the other big thing I think she needs to worry about is trust. And I also sort of touched on this already. But as soon as Tony said that he swore on his badge, she was like, all right, we're good. We're good to the end. And because she has something that is like her unbreakable swear, she will not break that swear on her badge. She sort of seems to think that everybody's like that. If they swear on something really important, then they will never go back on it. And I think she needs to recognize that that is probably not the case, especially in an all-star season. So she, again, came into this saying she was a human lie detector, basically. And if she actually has those skills, she needs to trust those instincts a little better and recognize when people are not actually telling her the truth. So, yeah, I think if she can work on that without getting too paranoid, because anyone who's played with Eliza will tell you that that's not fun to be around, uh, just trust her instincts. I think that she probably will be in a pretty good spot and uh, just work on those two things. I think that she'll actually... Be in an okay spot because I really do think that coming into it, she's actually not uh, considered a huge threat. So she might might be in a good position. Going back to the Tony thing, if she has a choice at some point during the game, 
do what's best for her game or do something to hurt or vote out Tony? Do you think she's going to take the shot? My concern is that she's going to do the Jerry Manthe thing where she's like, my only goal is to be here longer than Colby. And then she has this like really gloating confessional the next day. Uh, I worry that that's going to be Sarah, that she's going to be so fixated on just lasting longer than Tony that she's going to make bad moves just because she knows that they're going to lead to Tony getting out. I think what she should be doing, obviously, is not doing that. But I do worry that she might. She might just get fixated on lasting longer than Tony, regardless of the consequences in the long game. Let's see. Let's look at who Sarah is going to be starting the game off in season 34. And so uh, she is not going to be on a tribe with Tony. So they're both going to have to make it to a swap or emerge if we're going to see any of the fireworks happen between uh, the two of them, unless things like happen at challenges which is certainly in the realm of possibility but in this starting group do you feel like that there is anybody that you think looks like a natural alliance mate for sarah lucina yeah you know what i actually think debbie is someone that i surprisingly think that will do well with sarah debbie is someone who really appreciates people in these like authority type jobs she appreciates sort of military police types so i think she'll like that about sarah i also think uh, if you look at how she reacted to yeah, I think if she uh, if you look at how she reacted to Sydney, she was like, oh, you must have you must be really smart because look how fit you are. Uh, Sarah was on the Braun tribe. She's someone who really values physical fitness. So I feel like Debbie will also appreciate that about Sarah, that she's good in challenges. She's a cop. She, I feel like that's someone that will gravitate towards Sarah. OK, good, good. Who else is going to work with Sarah? Uh, it's a fair question. Uh, see, I was actually hoping that she was going to be on a tribe with Malcolm because she initially said that that was who she most compared her game to in her bio. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yes, I'm going to be exactly like Malcolm. I'm friendly and strategic, but uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, I feel like maybe, I don't know, someone like Ozzy perhaps could appreciate that she's good at challenges. Uh they're both similarly not great at the strategic game, so they might uh, connect on that. But there, were, there weren't a ton of people that I was really thinking she would have a necessarily contentious or great relationship one way or the other coming into the game. Because one thing about Sarah is I feel like she doesn't bring a ton of baggage with her into this game. Yeah, really she only with Tony. With, and, and she has like, uh, you know, uh, you need a uh, tractor trailer for that baggage. But everything else, exactly, she's exactly. kind of a blank slate. I mean, it could go either way. That's it. Yeah. So like, yes, the Abby Maria thing. She is not baggage. Yeah. Uh, she, yeah, there are <laughs> lots of people on this tribe that I think she could do really well with or people that she could argue with. Like, you know, someone like Brad Culpepper, she might think he's obnoxious and terrible or she might say like, oh, professional athlete. I too am physically fit. So it really could go either way. And I'm really curious to see how that's going to shake out. It's hard to compare Uncle Cliffy with Brad Culpepper because for everything (laughs) I understand about Cliff Robinson, he's like a really laid back guy, which is like not how you would ever describe Brad Culpepper. (laughs) So they sort of have different leadership styles. What about Sari and Sarah Lucina? Do you see that as a potential match or you think that there could be some friction there? I mean, I could see it. I feel like Sari can work with anyone if she chooses to. But I also feel like she's not necessarily into working with people who are not definitely going to play in her best interest. So Sarah has said repeatedly that she's willing to flip if it's in her best interest. And I feel like if Sari has seen Kagiyan, she's going to be like, oh, no, this is the person who considered flipping on her alliance. This is not necessarily someone who I perceive as being loyal. That said, she refused to flip on her or go back on her word when she swore on her badge. So, again, I feel like that's someone that could go either way. She might perceive Sarah as someone who's not very strategic, who she could drag to the end, or she might see her as someone who's too wishy-washy and can't be trusted. So 
What do you think? It's interesting to me. I always go back to who can Sari trust. And I feel like that Mm -hmm. that's who she wants to surround herself with based on the time that she's played before. And I think she might have some concerns about Sarah because she's so strong willed and Sari might feel like that she's not able to control what she's going to do. But you never Mm -hmm. know. It's one of those things that could go either way. I don't get a strong read on it or a Josh even uh, one way or the other. What about (laughs) Zeke? And Sarah Lucina. Do you think that uh, that Sarah and Zeke could be a fit? Potentially. I do think with Tony, I know he was saying he was concerned about telling everybody that he was a cop because maybe people have bad feelings about cops. I don't get the sense that people had that feeling towards Sarah, of like apart from Cass, of she's a cop. You know, we have negative feelings toward cops. We can't trust her or anything like that. So I do feel like that will help that she doesn't come across as maybe like being aggressive or any of the things that Tony was concerned about. So I don't know. I think that could work in her favor. But again, I don't have a great read on how she's going to do with any of these people other than Debbie, potentially. But I get the sense that she was a fan of the show. I feel like that mm-hmm. um, I could be wrong about this. I don't believe she was a recruit. So I think that she came into the show at least being a fan. I think that she probably has followed it over the last couple of years. Uh, certainly the second chance season, uh, watching all those other Kagiyan people, you would think mm-hmm. that she stuck with it through uh, Ko Rong to know uh, who some of these other people are. It'll be interesting to see if she can correct those problems that we talked about, you know, that could she go and do a full 360 and get back to the person I thought could have been the winner of Survivor Kageon. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. Uh, I feel like she's coming into the season. First of all, there are a lot of people in her tribe who I kind of think probably didn't even watch her season. But I do think she's coming into this game without, again, a lot of baggage, uh, not even just in terms of relationships, but she didn't go out of the game you know, looking really obnoxious or screaming at her tribe or getting caught in a big lie. Like, I feel like the way that people mostly remember her is just that she was the other cop on her season. She was the good cop to Tony's bad cop. And I think that that could endear her to a lot of people, assuming that they didn't see any of her big blunders. But if that's all they know about her, that could be good for her. Lindsay, do you think that having a baby is going to make Sarah more aggressive or less aggressive in the game? And I ask that because I say that uh, my wife has had two children And she has become increasingly more aggressive after each one. (laughs) She's more hostile. (laughs) I feel like it would be hard for Sarah to be more aggressive. She played the game pretty hard the first time around. Uh, But I also think, you know, like if you look at Tyson's game, for instance, once he had someone else to play for, he made fewer bad decisions. He has said before that he was like, okay, before I was thinking, oh, who cares if I get voted out? It's not a big deal. But once he started playing for Rachel, he felt like he was making smarter moves in the game and giving it a bit more thought. So I think potentially that's something that could happen to Sarah where she's like, okay, now I'm playing for my kid. Now I'm going to make better moves, think about them a little bit more. And that could that could really help her if she's able to you know act on it and do a better job. Yeah, it's going to be fun to see sort of the growth that happens in between seasons for people, and especially like the longer the layoffs, like that summer break uh, for school to see, you know, who's changed the most over the summer. So we'll see just how different a Sarah Lucina shows up on the beach in Survivor Game Changers. And you really talked me into really wanting this uh, Sarah and Debbie alliance to happen. <laughs> I feel like it could be delightful. What are we going to call them? Dara? That's pretty good. We already have <laughs> Dara, had Dara Johnson? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll both be on the puzzles. It'll be really magical. We'll lay down for them. Yes. It'll be perfect. It'll be perfect. Okay. Is there a hashtag that the Sarah Lucina stands are all using these days? 
That is a fair question, as I am like the only person who is not on Twitter, so I could not answer that successfully. I don't think. Okay, do you want? Do you have something that you want to throw out there? I mean, we could do hashtag Dara. Okay, hashtag Dara to make it happen between Debbie and Sarah Lucina over there on the Nuku tribe. Now, uh, what's your prediction on her? Do you see her as somebody who is going to be in this thing until the end? To be honest with you, I really don't. Uh, I think she's definitely safe at least until a swap. Uh, she is a really strong physical competitor. She's really great at challenges, both in terms of the competitions themselves and the puzzles. So I think she's probably good there. That said, she's on a pretty strong tribe, so there are fewer places to hide in that sense. But like, who's coming for Sarah in those first couple votes? I don't know that anybody's really seeing her as a threat that they want to get out right away. So I do think she's safe there. I actually think she's probably good after a swap up until the merge too, as long as she doesn't end up with Tony and someone who's really trying to get her out. So my prediction is probably that she'll be safe at least until the merge. Yeah. Uh, once she gets to the merge, she has to be really careful about overplaying again and trying to take too much control. But uh, I feel like, you know, she can at least get partway in, maybe back row jury. But, uh, you know, if, if I'm, I'm saying upside, she's probably a front row jury, yeah. <laughs> maybe like sixth or seventh place or something. You know, it's interesting. I'm looking back at Survivor Cambodia to see how the physically fit women did in that season. And the pre-merge boots on the women's side are Shireen, PG, Monica Padilla, and even Cass at the merge. So it's not until Wigglesworth that we get to, you know, a woman that you'd say is like a real standout in the challenges. Mm -hmm. So especially if we get into a situation where we go from two tribes to three tribes, which I think we all expect to have happen at some point, whether it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at 15 or at 18, you would think that that's probably something that's going to be in the offing. So you feel like that if she can make it through the group of 10, and get down to like the group of six or five, I feel like that her strength in the challenge is going to be really valued in that spot. I think so too. I really, I was actually thinking about this and I feel like for the most part, these strong women challenge competitors, they do tend to do well. Uh, Stephanie Lagrosa, notwithstanding in Heroes versus Villains. But uh, I feel like that's a pretty good spot for her and I'm not particularly worried about her going into the season uh, just for the first several weeks anyway. I think she's in a good spot. Do you think, yes or no, do we get a Sarah Tony showdown at any point this season? I would really like to see one. Do, I very much does hope it happen? both get onto a tribe together. I'm going to say no. Yeah. <sighs> in a perfect world, we get it. In a perfect world, we perfect get it. Perfect world, yes. Okay. Perfect world, we have Dara versus Tony. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lindsay, uh, great job. Uh, Such a pleasure to talk with you about all of this. You too. It was a delight. A little bit surreal for me, but wonderful anyway. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, Lindsay, again, thank you for all of your hard work going through all of this stuff. And uh, hopefully it works out here for Sarah Lucina. I hope so. I look forward to seeing it. It actually made it a lot of fun to kind of have a horse in the race now. I feel like I'm going to be really watching Sarah's game to see if any of my predictions come true. Lindsay, thanks again, and talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Lindsay Wilson talking about Sarah Lucina. I thought Lindsay did a great job. I really liked that observation she made where when Sarah realizes that she was right about Tony being a cop, it does give her a lot of confidence and perhaps some overconfidence. So it's interesting to see how she's going to do 
on her return trip back. In some of the preseason content that I've read, it doesn't seem like that she is coming in with two barrels pointed at Tony ready to unload. So based on some of the interviews I read that Josh had done, it seems as though she might be taking more of a cautious approach, uh, which Lindsay said would probably be the best course of action for her. So I think that she might be an interesting contender. I don't know if I'm talked into picking her as a winner pick the second time around just yet. But I think that what I will end up doing with Nicole is before the start of the season, we'll do a podcast. We'll get Nicole Stradamus's predictions. I will consume all of the preseason content and then I will spit out my own winner pick and jinx another person for a season of Survivor. All right. So that's going to do it for us here today. Of course, at the end of these interviews, I love to thank the patrons of Rob as a podcast for staying with me through all of this time. It has been a great pleasure to go through these game changer cast previews for you guys. And the feedback that I've gotten for the most part has been very, very nice again, for the most part, for the most part. So uh, thank you guys so much for that. And also thank you so much to the new patrons that have come on board during this process. I really do appreciate all all of the support find out more about becoming a patron and the benefits of that, which includes about 76 podcasts from over the last three years that you've never heard before. And the most amazing online community ever assembled all that and more is waiting for you. When you check out Rob has a website.com slash patron. Okay. So for Friday, we've got a, another great game changers cast preview. First, I'm going to be talking with another one of our listeners and it's another Lindsay. This time it's Lindsay Resco. And we're going to be talking about Stephen Fishback's BFF JT Thomas. And I think that's another interview that you're going to really enjoy. We had some uh, great insight from Lindsay about JT and she really did blow me away with everything that she had to say about understanding JT and his game. And then one that everyone has been clamoring for, we are finally going to be talking about the survivor fan favorite, Sierra Dawn Thomas. We are going to do a deep dive with Tom Tamillo, who really did an outstanding job making the case for Sierra Dawn Thomas and why maybe you might be sleeping on America's fan favorite, Sierra Dawn Thomas. So that is going to be coming up in our next edition of the Survivor Game Changers cast preview. And then I've got four more of these still to go. So we are going to have a jam-packed week after next, which includes our Sandra double episode coming up the week after this. So be on the lookout for all that. Subscribe to the podcast. Rob has a website.com slash iTunes. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say on Rob has a website.com. And of course, I love to hear your thoughts on social media, the good and the bad. I'm at Rob Sisterino. I always appreciate getting that feedback. So let me know what you think. Have a good one and take it away. Puya with the Malcolm Freeberg anthem. Hold up, bro. Are you for sure? Do you think Malcolm Gargasson the tank for one more? Apparently. So just sit back, relax, and let me hit you with all these facts. Gonna tell you he gonna make it to the end? Hmm. Well, it depends. See, if Malcolm wanna hit the end, then he's got to ride the middle. Accumulate meat just like he at a buffet. Ain't no shame in playing second fiddle. So he got two L's, but I'm not worried. 
Homeboy without two L's, he can't spell Malcolm, so here's what I'm saying. If you wanna calculate prospects, please don't look beyond the cast. Because every person there, he will outwit, I'll play out last. If this is a fact, got all my info from Rob has a podcast, Wayfaring, Mr. Survivor, and all that. I'm a walking, talking callback. He got the big moves, but won't yell it out that his name's Sierra. He got fan favorite, but not the title like his name is Sierra. What else to tell ya? He is not set up for failure. Oh, but wait, of course, anthems ain't complete without a chorus. Poison, be walking it, thinking this is my island. But one look at Malcolm, guaranteed that he won't be smiling. Because it's his game to lose. Give him turtles and give him boars. If you're drafting, he's easy to choose. Malcolm has got all the tours. Cause he's a game changer when he's got the idol. And a game changer when he's at a travel. Trust me when I say he's the man. Laughing this check all the way to the bank. Speaking confidence on my shit don't stink. Why do you think? Cause he's a game changer when he's got the idol. And a game changer 